Welcome. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and ask everyone to make your way to a table. And before you get attached to your table and it gets awkward, I'm just going to make a request. There are a few things that involve discussion and maybe even a few activities with your table mates. If you don't have table mates, it's going to be awkward. So if you're at a table of two or less, can I ask you to just right now just rip the Band-Aid off fast, get it over with, and just kind of combine with the table? The, the more full your table is, the better your experience is going to be. Let me just throw it out. Just put it that way. Fair enough? All right. So as you're finding your way to a table, as you're getting settled, there's a few things we'll just kind of go over as far as housekeeping goes. So first of all, hi. I think I know most of you, but in case I don't, I'm Steve. And uh, a little bit of background about me as far as why I'm here doing this today. If most of you know me, you probably know me as the guy who plays guitar on Sunday mornings. Uh, I have a background. My undergrad is in biblical studies, and I completed about a year ago my master's degree in Christian apologetics from Biola. Go Eagles. Wearing the shirt. I spent a lot of money for this shirt. So... uh, Glad to do that. So part of that is I wanted to, upon completing that, is to pay it forward. Uh, Part of what I feel called to do is to take what I have been privileged to gain through that time and to provide ways to give that back to to the body. And so that's part of why we've done seminars. Uh, Show of hands, how many of you have taken the How to Study the Bible seminar with me? Okay, most of you. Cool. So... This is the first, well, this is the, first, this is the second seminar that, that I've done. So if you've taken Understanding the Bible three times in a row, thank you. I really appreciate it. But now we have something else to offer you. So that's great. So I, as most of you know, I uh, have a beautiful wife, two beautiful kids coming up on this year, five-year anniversary. That was fast. And uh, excited and exhausted all the time with my, my two little ones. And I... Enjoy riding my motorcycle, enjoy playing video games when I can. And my wife and I's hobby right now is Netflix. We watch Netflix usually after the kids go to bed until we can't keep our eyes open, which is usually between 8 and 8.30. And, uh, yeah, I am a huge coffee addict. So every time you see a coffee slide, that means it's break time. And, uh, unfortunately, I don't think we actually have coffee, so that's a faux pas on my part, but just so you all know. And, and there we go. So that's a little bit about me. So a few housekeeping items. You will see on, in front of you, you should all have a packet. So we have a note, notebook, a note packet for you. It is fill in the blank if you're that kind of OCD person, but everything that's there will be on the slide. The idea behind this is that we will provide you with a sort of take-home summary of, of everything we're going to cover today, because we're going to cover a lot. Anytime on a slide you see a number in the bottom right corner, that corresponds to the page number on the bottom right corner of your notebook, so you can always know where you are. So, speaking of notes, as I said, that's going to be sort of a take-home packet for you that's going to summarize everything. There's going to be a few other things in there, too, we'll talk about at the end. Now... If you've been with me before, you know there's some, there's some weird stuff on your tables. Some koosh balls and some... I'm going to wander out here. I'm going to break the wall, the force field. And there's some pipe cleaners and some koosh balls and things on your tables. So how many of you are, would consider yourselves auditory learners? You learn by hearing best. That's how you retain information. Anyone? Okay, a few of you. That's why I'm here. Hi. 
How many of you consider yourself visual learners? You need to see it. That's why the slides are there. How many pen clickers, ring twirlers, fidget spinner personalities do I have? I'm one, so it's okay. You're safe here. We can say that's why all that's there. Please, please, please feel free to grab a koosh ball. There's no shame in making yourself pipe cleaner glasses. If that keeps you engaged, I will not, I will not take it personally. Note about cell phones, please. I know it's, it's Easter weekend. We probably all have family in town. I totally get it if you need to step out and take a call, send a text, all that stuff. But just please spay and neuter your cell phones. Just put them on silent or vibrate so that if you need to step out, that's great. So we all don't know your ringtone. That's really, that's really what that's for. Any questions so far? We good? All right. So you know a little bit about me and why I'm here. I would like you to take a moment at your tables, introduce yourself to the people at your table, and answer this question. Why are you here? So what is it that you are here to do, to get out of today? What is, what is your primary goal for being here? So go ahead and do that. I'll give you a couple minutes. All right. So, anyone, anyone, anyone brave enough, willing enough to share why, what are, what are you hoping to get out of today? Why are you here? Anyone? Please. Yeah, I mean, I've got a basic, like most of us, a, a basic overview of the Bible, but I want more of an interview, and yeah. this is an easy way to do it. Sounds good. Yeah, more, more in-depth understanding of what all's going on here. Anyone else? Or did Dave speak for everyone here? Right. Yeah, please. Well, I have already said it is really my favorite. It's the events that occurred Yeah, you have rightly identified that the resurrection is kind of a big deal. It's kind of a big deal if you're a Christian. Uh, it's, and so, yeah, we really should understand if we have good reasons for, for believing in it, right? Since it's sort of the foundational event. So thank you for that wonderful segue because... It's like you're reading off my script here. So we'll talk about why does the resurrection matter? It matters primarily for a, a few reasons. So we're gonna, I'm going to quote Paul because he said it better than I can. So if you turn to page one, this is actually your very first fill in the blank if you're, if you're into that kind of thing. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. <laughs> Paul doesn't, Paul's not known for his soft language. He kind of doesn't pull any punches. He says, if the dead are not raised, then... Not even Jesus has been raised. And if Jesus has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. In other words, it makes absolutely all the difference in the world whether this actually happened or didn't. And it doesn't really matter if the resurrection didn't happen. It doesn't really matter if it makes you feel good. It doesn't really matter if you find it useful to believe in the resurrection. It's false. So you so sleep in tomorrow is basically what Paul's saying here. But if it did happen, the world is a very different sort of place. So it, it matters a whole heck of a lot whether this actually happened or not. And Paul was the first one to say, look, if it didn't happen, I'm going to go do something else with my time and save myself a whole lot of beatings and grief and all these other things because it's not true. So that's what we're after. Now, this 
lovely looking gentleman here is uh, Gerd Ludemann. He's a, a German, in case you couldn't tell, a uh, New Testament scholar. The umlaut over his name probably gave it away, right? He is a skeptical New Testament scholar, and he proposes some alternative theories for what he thinks explains the resurrection. But here's a, here's a piece of what he is basically, when he's summarizing his argument, here's what he has to say. Let us say quite specifically, the tomb of Jesus was not empty, but full. And his body did not disappear, but rotted away. Tomb was full, his body rotted away. Now, Gerd Ludemann thinks he can make that case. So the question is, can he? Because we certainly, if you're a Christian, you believe something very different than that. Now, there's another skeptical New Testament scholar who's very well regarded. He's an American named Bart Ehrman. He teaches New Testament at the University of North Carolina. And he doesn't go quite as far as Gerd Ludemann, but he basically says, in, in, for context, in his book, he's talking about all the alternative theories that have been proposed over the years about the resurrection, that the stolen body, that Jesus only looked like he was dead and later he revived, that it was a hallucination, like all these different theories. And he, and he basically says, leading into that, I don't subscribe to any of these alternative views because I don't think that we can know what happened to the body of Jesus. But... Simply looking at the matter from a historical point of view, any of these views is more plausible than the claim that God raised Jesus physically from the dead. Why? Because a resurrection would be a miracle. And miracles defy all probability. So no matter how improbable you think it is that the disciples stole the body, it's infinitely more probable that that happened than that a miracle occurred. And we've talked before in our understanding of the Bible and how to study the Bible class that uh, we all have worldviews, we all have biases. Bart Ehrman's is showing a little bit. His worldview slip is sort of, sort, of, sort of popping down here. So we'll talk about what that is and why that happens. But just to be aware of these other views that are out there. So this is what we're up against. This is what the scholarship that's skeptical is, is talking about. So we have some big questions we need to answer today. The first question is what happened? What actually happened in Jerusalem that day? Now, this is a question that, surprisingly, we have uh, we can get pretty good consensus on historically from scholarship across the aisle. The bigger question, and this is what everyone sort of debates, is, so what's the best explanation for that? There's large agreement about some specific facts of what happened, and we're going to cover those today. But how do you interpret those? That's where there's a large divergence. We're going to try and do both of those today. So it's your turn. At your tables, on your notebooks, you have a question. Now, I'm not going to assume right now that you do believe that the resurrection happened, but if you do, or if you're not sure, or if you don't think it happened, the point is, if you had to defend your viewpoint, whatever your viewpoint is right now, what would you say? How would you defend your viewpoint about whatever it is that you believe? So we'll throw a little music on. I'm going to give you just a couple minutes and answer this question. Talk about it at your tables. Okay. So I'll ask for some more brave volunteers. So what, what, do, you, what do you got? If you were going to defend your viewpoint, whatever it happens to be right now on the resurrection, what would you tell someone who doesn't share your viewpoint? What reasons would you give them? 
please. Okay. I believe in the Bible. Mm-hmm. I believe it's God's word. Mm-hmm. And I believe that God's word is true. Okay. Believe it because the Bible says it. Okay. What else? Any other reasons you'd offer? Please. Fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy is a problem if if you date the books the way that most conservative scholars date the books. I will say that there's, and we'll get into this when we get into the dating of the Gospels, there's a whole group of skeptical scholars who more or less are forced to date the Gospels much, much later than most conservative scholars would date them precisely because of the problem of prophecy. Since prophecy can't happen, it had to have been written after this event occurred because we all know that prophecy can't happen. But to your point, assuming that we can date it prior to the event that it predicted, yeah, that's, that's certainly powerful. What else, please? Something happened to the body, presumably, because we would really expect not to still be having this conversation if a body had shown up a few days after, right? Totally. Okay. Well, and there's, there's, so there's the Jewish practice of placing the, letting the body decay for about a year and then placing the bones in something called an ossuary that is then put in the family tomb and all that stuff. So, and we've found plenty of these in first century Palestine, but we haven't found one for Jesus. Now, not having found it doesn't mean it's not there, but the point is, is we haven't found it. Please, yeah. Anyone else? Eyewitnesses? Okay. Right, And we have to establish whether they're credible or not, but on face value, we have eyewitnesses, and they say that something happened, right? Just one or two, they Right, yeah. And I think with that, the most credible is the fact that, and as a result, the entire earth changed. Yeah. The entire world from an option. So you've got two things there. You have the conversion of a skeptic, which is in and of itself something to consider, and then, yeah, somehow, some way, Christi- this, this thing called Christianity got started. How do you explain that, right? So you're, you're touching on at least some, I'd even say most of what we're going to get into. So the question is then, how can we be sure that those things are justified? And that's where we're going to go. So thank you. So here's the, here's the deal. If, if, if Jesus rose, and I'm going to make a very conservative claim, if this happened, it tells us four things, at least four things, but these are four things I would, I would say it tells us. And this, uh, one of my professors at Biola, he, he, is responsible for three of the four things on this list. So full credit to Sean McDowell on this. If Jesus rose, it tells us that God exists because otherwise people don't come back from the dead. Not only does it tell us that God exists if this happened, it also tells us which God exists. There's a lot of claims out there that a lot of gods are real, but if a man was dead and then a little while later he wasn't, that's a heavy point in favor of the God that was responsible for, for doing, doing that deed. It also tells us there is life after death. It corroborates that, well, he came back from somewhere. And so that tells us that as well. And then finally, and this is the one I would add, is that it also tells us that everything that Jesus believed and taught is true. Because he believed it, he died, he came back to life, as he predicted that he would, 
that lends a lot of credence to whatever it is that he believed. Now, it's on us to try and get at what, is, what it is exactly that Jesus believed and taught, but assuming that we can get to that, then we could say, okay, well, that's true. Fair enough? All right, so we'll take a look at what is in store for us today. This morning, we're going to look at some methodology. How are we going to go about this process? We're going to look at context. What is the historical setting in which all these facts occur? And that's extremely important when we get to interpreting them later. Then we're going to spend the rest of the morning starting to look at the historical evidence, the what happened. At some point in there, TBD, we'll break for lunch, after which we will finish up the historical evidence, and then we will transition into exploring theories which ultimately is where we're going to want to kind of put our own interpretive thinking caps on and, and decide what we think is the most warranted. Now, I'll just say, there are entire semester classes that you could take on any one of the numerous topics we're going to cover here. It's been a challenge, to say the least, to distill all of that into a half-day uh, seminar. So... With that in mind, I just need you to understand up front that we're going to be kind of like skipping the stone across the the surface of the water here. We could absolutely spend much more time on most of these things. For the sake of time and to get the whole picture, we're going to have to move. Now that said, there's other resources and things that I'd be happy to point you to. Some of them are in your notebook uh, for deeper study on any one of these topics. And that might be, if you have questions about those later, we can talk. So... Just full disclosure up front, we're going, to be, we're going to be booking. Any questions so far? All right. Take your silence as a no. So let's dive into methodology. Now, uh, there's a few things to, to talk about here in terms of how, what, what our mindset is going to be as we dive into this. So first and foremost, today, you are a historian, not a theologian, not a philosopher, not a skeptic. The idea here is we are, we are asking the question, did an event occur historically as a matter of historical record? And as such, the, the historian hat is the best hat to put on to answer that question. As a historian, there's a few best practices. And this is going to help sort of guide us and hopefully end up at the best, fairest answer. The first is we're going to try and strive toward neutrality. Now, if you've taken my Bible study seminar, you know that everyone has bias. It doesn't mean that we can't arrive at truth, but it doesn't mean we need to be aware of it. So the idea here is not that we'll be completely objective and unbiased. That's not realistic. The idea here is that when we approach evidence or a historical document, we are going to do two things. We're, we're not going to assume its guilt, nor are we going to assume its innocence. In other words, if we read a text and we say, well, that sounds ridiculous, that couldn't have happened the way that they write it. Let's see if there's good reasons for believing what they say first. Let's not assume guilt and just discard it. But by the same token, let's not believe it either. Just because it says it, it must be true. Whatever, whatever you land on, we need to find good reasons to support it. That's where we're getting at. Cool? As such, and I'll spend a few minutes on this one because this might be mildly controversial. The New Testament today is going to be treated as, in the interest of neutrality, a series of ancient historical documents. Not a collected book, but each of the letters of the New Testament were individual works by different authors, and they were later collected, 
collated into what we now have. So we're going to treat them as individual, historical, ancient, first century documents. Now, full disclosure, I do believe, and I think there's a case to be made, that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God to us, that it is his revelation to us. However, that is far beyond the scope of this seminar. That'll probably be the topic of our next seminar. But in the interest of neutrality, I'm not going to assume that here. Not because I don't believe it, but because, well, we'll get to that in a few minutes about how that really doesn't set us up for success if we're trying to, A, understand this as fairly as possible, and also make this case to people who don't believe what we believe. You can't start there. So that's why we're going to take that approach. All of that is geared toward answering the question, what is the best explanation? We're going to gather evidence, and then later we're going to try and interpret it, and this is the question that we're trying to answer. What's the best explanation for all this stuff that I have laid out in front of me at the end of today? As historians, and this is true of every ancient document, as they're trying to get in and, and mine the facts, there are five criteria that historians use to weigh interpretations or theories that they have about what happened. The first is something called explanatory scope. Anyone want to venture a guess as to what that means? What does that make you think of, or how, how would you maybe in, define that at first blush? Anyone? All right, I'll give you the first one for free. How much of the evidence does the theory explain? Does it answer two of my eight things and leave the others out? Does it answer seven of my eight things? What's left on the table after I, I adopt this theory? Let's run it out. Does it explain everything, or does it explain most things, or does, does it only explain one of the things? The more things it explains, the, the better it is. That seems to make sense. Next, explanatory power. All right, you know what scope is. Any thoughts on power? We'll get there. That's one of them. So strength. So let me ask you this question. You have to dig 50 yards into the side of a mountain. Would you rather use dynamite or a camping spade from Walmart? The dynamite, right? They both, you can do it. Both will get the job done. The question is, how easily does the theory explain the evidence? How much work do you have to do to get this to fit? Are you jamming puzzle pieces in? There's going to be a puzzle later, so I have puzzles in the brain. But it, does it do the work easily? Does it just all kind of click or not? The, the more easily it does that, the better it is. Plausibility. So this is sort of what you mentioned, Dave. So the idea here is how reasonable is the theory based on known facts? Again, we're not just in search of what is possible. Lots of things are possible, but not everything is plausible or reasonable. So the more reasonable it is, the more plausible it is, the better it is as a theory. Fourth, lower <laughs> ad hocness. Now, this is not a real word. I just kind of made it up because I don't know how else to say it. Do I have anyone who knows any, any little bits of Latin or has taken philosophy or logic or anything like that? Does anyone know what ad hoc means? It is Latin. Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Okay. Ad hoc in Latin means for this or for that. The idea is here, how many assumptions 
does the theory require? And, and by assumptions, what I really mean is additional beliefs. So this is sort of best illustrated with an example. And I'll give you one here in just a minute. But the idea is, and I use the bridge popping up out of nowhere slide as actually to help make the point, is the idea here is how many other things that just sort of pop up suspended in midair are required for me to believe in order to take the theory seriously. The fewer assumptions I have to make that I can't justify, the stronger the theory is. So we'll give you an example. Our friend, Dr. Ludeman, in his book, he's explaining in this one part about his theory about Paul. How do you account for the conversion of Paul? Paul was a skeptic. Here's what Dr. Ludeman has to say. And I've highlighted, just for me, just visually, every time that an assumption is made, or he starts the idea of an assumption, but I'll just go ahead and read this to you. He says, underlying Paul's vehemently aggressive attitude to Christians was presumably an interpersonal inability, which depth psychology has established to be a frequent cause of aggressive behavior. In general, this inability is expressed in the attraction of someone by something that goes against his principles. Such a person may not or will not, therefore, yield to it. So he attempts to suppress this feeling by force. But the more he does this, the more he comes to hate others who can openly express the same feeling. Perhaps we can follow Jung, uh, the, the psychoanalyst Jung, in saying that Saul was unconsciously a Christian even before his conversion. Now that is a mouthful. The idea here is Paul... Well, actually, I'll let you tell me. What's the idea here? What, what is... What is Ludeman saying was true about Paul leading up to his conversion experience. He what? And what does that mean? He was already, so he already believed at least some of what the Christians were saying. What else? Does it, what else is he saying happened here? So I'm in stereo here. So I heard he, he kind of hated himself for believing it, and he had to struggle through Yes, he had some cognitive dissonance. He was struggling internally. He had this war going on in himself that he was trying to reconcile. Yeah, what else? Yeah, so, I mean, for whatever reason, he was, he was innerly feeling this pull, but he was struggling outward. He had feelings of guilt, all these things. He's feeling ashamed because he's got this official capacity. He's in leadership, but he actually identifies here. What else? Any other thoughts? Well, and it, I, I guess you could say it, the conversion, if it happened much, much earlier, or it happened over a period of time, but the conversion experience itself, Ludeman would say, was a was a result of all this, like steam building up in a pressure valve, and Paul basically had a, a vision that was brought on entirely by all these internal feelings and, and dissonance that he was experiencing. So the question is, so how many additional belief, in order to say, yep, Paul hallucinated, he had a vision that was entirely naturalistic, nothing actually happened, but Paul thought it did. That's the conclusion Ludeman comes to, but how many, like the, the bridge popping up out of nowhere, how many other beliefs do we have to accept in order to come to that conclusion? We've named, I think, maybe three or four. There's probably more in there, but we have to accept that Paul secretly uh, thought that there was something about the Christians that was, that was right, that he secretly felt guilty 
about his persecution, that his anger and his persecution of them was actually an external way of him working through the anger and uh, hate that he felt toward himself for feeling so conflicted. All these things. Now, what reasons do we have for thinking that any of those things happened? That's the right answer. We don't. It's assumptions that we have to make. This is an example of ad hocness. Now, this answers the question of Paul really well, but it requires you to make all kinds of belie- uh, additional statements that you can't really justify in order to prop that up. We want to avoid that as much as possible. The less our theory does this, the better and stronger it is. That's the most complicated of all of them. The last one is illumination. So what I mean by illumination? The question is, how much light does the theory shed on other sort of related or peripheral or secondary issues? So I'll give you an example of this. If, if the bodily resurrection turns out to be the theory that's the best theory, that sheds light on secondary issues in the New Testament that aren't directly related to the resurrection, such as it helps us understand and put into the proper context Jesus' divine claims to, to be uh, divine. It helps us put into context his uh, seeming ability to resuscitate dead people, to have power over nature. It seems to put in context and help us understand Um, his seeming ability to predict the future, to know people's thoughts, and other abilities that, well, if he is, if this is true about Jesus, it helps solve a whole bunch of other peripheral issues. The more it does it, now this is not required to be the right theory, but if it does this, that's helpful. And the more it does this, the stronger the theory it is. So you take all these things into account, this is how historians weigh things and are trying to figure out what's the best theory that I want to go with, what probably happened. So we're going to talk about context. So that's methodology. Any questions on methodology? Okay. So for context, here's what I want you to do. I would like a table representative. And if you're back at one of these long tables, you are a table. So one of you from every table, please come up, grab a puzzle. You have... There's three of each, so the fastest ones get the first choice. We have dolphins, we have muscle cars, we have space, dinosaurs, and butterflies. You take your pick, everyone. So take one puzzle back to your table. Oh, I love it. People are actually debating which puzzle to grab. That's right. Got to look at the box art. All right. Also, I should have noted, please, if you're going to come up here, don't trip and die over the cord that's right here. <laughs> I'm trying to do that as well. So you're at your, you're at your table. So here's, here's the deal. I'll give you a couple minutes. At your tables, when I say go, nobody jump the gun, I want you to dump your puzzle. The puzzles are in a Ziploc bag. I want you to assemble your puzzle using the box image. So make sure you've got your box image all set up and good, ready to go. And I'm going to give you a couple minutes. Now, the object is not to finish your puzzle. It's just to, to do the puzzle. Yeah. Mm, that's a good call. Well, forget the box art, maybe. No, just, do, just use your puzzle. Um, I don't have a picture. I know. All right, everyone ready? Go ahead, and I'll give you just a couple minutes. 
Okay, against, against, no, I shouldn't say against all odds. You've taken too many seminars with me. You're all way too smart. You figured this out about 10 seconds in, which, you know what? High five. Everyone high five. So on your, uh, what's the problem? If anyone's got it, there's a few of you who figured out there's a problem here. They don't match. So on your bag, your Ziploc bag, there should be a number. On the inside of your box art, there's a number. Can you please switch boxes, not bags, not boxes, or not bags and puzzle pieces, just the box. Please switch whole boxes and find someone who's got your number and their number and switch it all around. So keep the puzzles and the bags at your table. Puzzles and bags at your table, but please find the correct box. Okay. Does anyone still need a box? Still need a box. We've got a couple. Does anyone still have a box? Okay. So who needs a one? Who needs a one? So to clarify, your table should still only have one box, but it should be a box that matches the number on the bag. There are, well, there's two, but, oh, yeah, you know what? That might be it. What number do you need? You need three? Right, here you go. Actually, let's, uh, and we've got it. There you go. Thank you. I do. I do have a two. I don't know who needs the one. There's a two, and we'll switch these back. Okay. So, I'm going to give everybody just a couple more minutes now. Please go ahead and, using the appropriate box, go ahead and work on your puzzle. All right, so let's go ahead and wrap up. I know the completionists in the group are gonna really get stressed out right now, but I'm just gonna ask you to all take, take a deep breath in through your nose, out through your mouth. All right, here's what I'd like you to do. It's up to you if you wanna do it now, but at some point today, no later than lunch, please put the puzzle pieces back in the baggie, back in the correct box, and you can just leave it hanging out there, cool? Okay. Now, that was a little awkward, but it was for a reason. So, would anyone, would anyone ver- care to venture a guess? Why'd we do that? And two, what does that have to do with context? Outside the box. Well, in this case, the box would have been really helpful. <laughs> but yeah, the, the correct one. The, the picture needs to match the puzzle. Why? Why is the picture helpful? Yeah, it, I mean, it tells you what it's supposed to look like, right? The pieces have to fit all together. The pieces have to fit together, and if they... they if, the right, yeah, there, there really needs to be some continuity there. Now, yeah, how much easier was it to put the puzzle together when you had the right, the right image? Not very. Not very. <laughs> Not a puzzler. We've talked about it. We're, we're, we got a support group after this for not puzzle people. Was it easier than having the wrong image? Okay, made a little bit of difference. It was a little bit confusing, right, at the beginning. I, 
props to you for doing it before you even got back to the table. He's just like, this, this, is, this is something wrong. <laughs> so, way to be. Way to be. So, here's kind of the idea. Context is absolutely essential. If you're going to do interpreting... And you're going to, in order to properly interpret, it is very, very helpful, some would even say necessary, to have the appropriate context or the box image in mind. If you don't have the right box image, it's going to be really hard to understand what it is you're looking at as you're trying to put pieces together. But when you have the right box image, the pieces make much more sense. So the same is true when we're trying to interpret and understand these facts. The, the facts are our puzzle pieces. We need to have the right box image if we're going to make the best sense of these. Otherwise, some things are going to be kind of confusing. N.T. Wright is a New Testament scholar who is a Christian. He writes this. Early Christian belief in resurrection is clearly not something derived from any form of paganism. In other words, any of the Greek or Roman beliefs at the time. Early Christian belief is a mutation or an evolution of beliefs that come from within Judaism. So in other words, our right context for understanding the culture and the thinking and the beliefs and the theology of the time is a Jewish context, not a Roman context, not a Greek context. That's important because when we get into some of these things, we're going to have, we're going to, have to remember that and it's going, to, it's going to put the puzzle pieces into the correct framework. Now, how does, how does N.T. Wright justify that claim? A few ways. He says, he actually breaks these into six for, for continuity. I'll just, I made them five. He says there's five Jewish beliefs that were true at the time in first century or even before that Christianity came out of. The first, it was, uh, belief in resurrection was a peripheral belief. Meaning this, if you go to, actually in all the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and Acts 23, we, we read about the Sadducees. Does anyone know what separated the Sadducees from the Pharisees? It's on the slide. They, yeah, they didn't believe in bodily resurrection. They didn't, they didn't believe it. They said, no, that doesn't happen. This is the Sadducees who came to Jesus with the whole number problem of, well, this, this woman married seven different guys, whose wife is she going to be in heaven, right? And the whole idea was they didn't want an answer. They just thought the whole idea of resurrection was ridiculous, and the question was intended to bring that out. And Jesus is like, you don't know what you're talking about. But the point is, is that you did not have to be a believer in resurrection to be a Jew. You didn't. You could be in the Sadducees camp in this time. And there's another camp we'll talk about in a minute. So resurrection was not essential to being a Jew. Is belief in resurrection essential to being a Christian? Yes, yes it is. All right, cool. We're all on the same page. That's a mutation. That came out of something that was very different in the Jewish belief. So we have one definite change there. The second, it was a vague concept in Jewish belief with a largely metaphorical meaning. How do we know this? If you go to the book of Ezekiel, the dry bones passage, right? This is as vivid of a picture of resurrection as you will get in the Old Testament. There was a noise, and behold, Ezekiel's having a vision, by the way. There was a, a noise and uh, rattling, and the bones, he sees a valley of actual dry like bones, skeletons, corpses. The bones start to rattle and come together, and then sinew and tendons, and then flesh and muscle come over them, and then skin. And now he's got a whole bunch of, if you read the passage, 
fully reanimated but still dead bodies laying on the ground. But now they're, now they're fully human corpses laying on the ground. And then God comes along and breathes life into them and then they stand up. And he's the purpose of this, he's, when skip ahead to verse 13, he says, Then you will know that I am the Lord, that I have opened your graves and caused you to come out of your graves, my people. The context of Ezekiel is about God bringing his people from exile back into their land and reestablishing a relationship with them. So the idea of resurrection is used very metaphorically in the Old Testament in Jewish thought to represent God restoring, God renewing, but it was not necessarily, except in a few small camps, taken literally. And it was very vague as to, well, what exactly does that mean? We don't know. It's always written about very vaguely. Next, in Jewish belief at the time, resurrection fell along a wide spectrum of beliefs. Now, we've already looked at the Sadducees, and we'll look at them again in a second, but this is an ancient Jewish historian named Josephus. We'll meet him again in a minute. When he's writing, he actually summarizes all of this for us. He writes about the Pharisees and says, the Pharisees say that the soul is incorruptible and that the good, the, the righteous, at some point in the future will be removed into new bodies. Not so for the wicked, but it will be for the righteous. This was the Pharisaic belief at the time. So if you're righteous, you get, not only is your soul survive physical death, but you will at some point in the future get a new body. A physical, a spiritual body. But spiritual meant physical at the time. That's, we'll get into that with Paul. Now, there's another group. Oh, actually, before that. So we know that this was also the, the belief of, of Jews who weren't part of the Pharisees at the time, when we read a book called Second Maccabees. Now, this is not part of the, uh, the Protestant Bible, but this book was written during what's called the Silent Years, the 400-year period between Old and New Testaments. It happened relatively shortly before the birth of Jesus. There was a Jewish uprising, and the Romans put it down. The Romans came, and they surrounded, and they sieged this, this um, spot that the, the, the Maccabean... Uh, Jews had taken up refuge in, and they, they went in and they killed them all. Now, as a result of this, there were some people during this revolt that were taken captive by the Romans. And Antiochus, the Roman emperor at the time, is, or governor at the time, he's grilling some of them. So the story in Second Maccabees is that there's a mother and her seven sons, and they are progressively, every one of them, being tortured to death in front of the others to try and get them to recant. Antiochus was not a nice guy. He was trying, he went in and he, um, he destroyed and, and didn't destroy, but he, he desecrated the temple and he was forcing at, at, at sword point, he was forcing Jewish people to eat pork, which if you know anything about kosher law and, and the Levitical law, that was, that was really bad. And it was basically a renouncement of their faith if they did that. So he's like, eat pork or I'll kill you. And every one of these seven brothers and their mom are basically saying progressively, no. Every one of them is tortured to death worse than the last, and none of them recant. So as they're going through and they get their last say-so, you see the kinds of things that they're saying. So the, one of the brothers says, you can kill us, but we're going to be raised from the dead to eternal life. Another one has his hands and his feet cut off, and he says, basically, you can take my hands, God will give them back to me. So he has a very, very literal view of resurrection. when he's saying He thinks he's actually going to get his hands back at some point. And then one says, God will raise us from death, but for you, Antiochus, there will be no resurrection to life. So again, this is the Pharisaic belief played out in the common people at the time. 
Now, there's another group, the Sadducees, which we also said Josephus summarizes this way. They don't believe in the incorruptibility or the survival of the soul. For them, they were materialists. It's physical life only. So it's ashes to ashes, dust to dust. This is it. When, when, when life is over, it's over. There's nothing beyond that. And so they lived very different lives than the Pharisees. Lastly, there was a group called the Essenes. Who's heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? These guys wrote those. So these was, this was a group, if you could treat them as sort of like, think of them in terms of like monks who lived outside of the city. They, they were disgusted by the, the, the ways that they saw that both the Pharisees and the Sadducees had sort of collaborated with Romans. They wanted nothing to do with that. So they basically said, we're washing our hands of you all. We're just going to go and live by ourselves outside the city. They had a very different belief, a very Greek belief at the time. They thought, so the soul survives, but not the body. So the soul will live on in sort of this unembodied, immaterial, soulish form for all of eternity, but that's it. The, the body is corruptible, it's bad, it's not going to survive physical death. So you've got all this spectrum of beliefs in early Judaism. None of that occurs in Christianity. You have a very specific, a very literal, and it's the only game in town view of the Christians. It was a singular belief at the end of time. No one expected resurrection to happen in stages, right? Daniel 12.2 talks about how at the end of time that those who are asleep will awake to everlasting life. And this view is reflected in Jesus' conversation with Martha at the death of Lazarus. He says to her, your brother will rise again. And what does she say to him? I know he will. In the resurrection, on the last day. Down there at some point, yeah, of course he's going to rise again. And that's obviously not what Jesus was talking about. So, the Christian belief that resurrection happens in two stages, that Jesus is now, and the first fruits of resurrection is now, and then in a second stage, the, the second part of resurrection will happen, that was not a Jewish belief at the time. It was one and done at the end of time. Lastly, this is very key. The Jewish belief in resurrection was unconnected completely with the understanding of the Jewish hope of a Messiah. The Messiah was not ever supposed to die, let alone rise. And we can say this from Bart Ehrman summarizes this pretty well when he says, the first thing to state and to state emphatically is that no Jew ever thought the Messiah would be God. Who would make up the idea of a crucified Messiah? No Jew that we know of. It is hard today to understand just how offensive the idea of a crucified Messiah would have been to most first century Jews. And then he goes on to say, so it's rather awkward then that this belief in a crucified Messiah came from a bunch of Jewish guys. What accounts for that? And his conclusion is something had to have happened actually historically to have caused such a shift. This is a very un-Jewish belief. So we have to explain it somehow. They would not have come up with this on their own, just reflecting. They just wouldn't have. That's And that's what both conservative and skeptical scholars come to that conclusion. So, whew, we're, we're, we're in it now. So we're going to take, let's take about whatever you have on your watch or your phone or however you keep time. Please add six minutes to it and then come back here and we'll pick up with the historical evidence.
It was one of those. I've got to order 15 puzzles this week, so just get them all. Yeah. All right, everyone. Thank you kindly for taking a seat. We're going to dive back in, and we're going to roll, start rolling on the historical evidence and then until lunch. So, if you study, if you've, how many of you have ever studied this topic before? Anyone? Okay. Out of, out of those, yeah, that's right. Out of those, how many of you have heard of something called the minimal facts approach? All my youth. Nice. That's right, because we did this last semester. So the minimal facts approach is this idea of what is the, what is, what are, what are some historical sort of bedrock facts that lots of people, uh, conservative, moderate, and liberal, would agree on. And then based on that, that's where our, our case is. We're trying to, to make as few controversial statements as possible and just take kind of what's accepted by the wide majority and then build our case from there. So that's kind of the approach we're taking. Now, there's versions of this that range from three minimal facts to 16 minimal facts. Personally, I just, I, I, we're going to do four. Four is what I kind of settle on uh, as far as this goes. So how do we recognize what is a minimal fact? There's a few ways. And again, none of these are what makes something true, but if it's there, it makes it easier to identify it as true. Does that, does that distinction, did I explain that well? In other words, if they're not here, it doesn't make them false. But if they are here, it adds a lot of credibility to it. So the first is broad scholarly support. And I say that for this reason. Counting noses does not make something true. Everyone in the world could believe something and it might still be false. But it does mean that if you have a broad range of scholars who are both on the critical and conservative side who can agree, that might be worth paying attention to. That's, that's the point. Next, multiple sources. So are there, again, if we only have one copy of something, does it mean that it's false and we should disregard it? No, not necessarily. But if we can corroborate it with other sources who are independently saying the same thing, that strengthens the case. Early sources. Again, we have, so I'll give you an example, Julius, the life of Julius Caesar. We have one source 400 years after the man lived and died that tells us about his life. Virtually no scholars uh, doubt what's written there in terms of how it portrays who Caesar was and how he lived. It doesn't mean that it's automatically ruled out, but the earlier we can get, the less opportunity there was for legend, for embellishment, for additions, for scribes to come in and kind of add stuff and tweak things. The earlier we can get, the better. And then are they credible? They might be saying something that we're actually concerned about and we can't know if it's true. But where they give us other historical details, can we corroborate those? If we can, that lends credibility to the things we can't corroborate. But if they say things that we can prove historically to be untrue, that discredits them when they say other things that we're trying to... So can we corroborate them? Are they, do they have the ring of credibility? Any questions about those sort of standards? Here's our first historical fact. Jesus died by crucifixion and was buried. Jesus died by crucifixion and was buried. 
my pages are stuck. There we go. So how do we know this? Now, the first question is, so do we have multiple sources for this? First of all, we're going to start with non-Christian sources because one of the one of the complaints, and I think rightly so, maybe, depending on how the argument is made, is, well, if all you had were Christian sources, of course they're going to say this. They're Christians. They're biased. The problem with that, of course, is that, as we've talked, everyone's biased. So just because I happen to believe something does not necessarily make it false, but it would be awfully helpful to the case if we could get people who didn't believe it to say and support the same thing. And I failed to mention this earlier when we were talking about ad hocness um, in, our, in our criteria, but I'll just say it now. This is one of the reasons why, as a Christian, I personally don't support making a case for the resurrection from Scripture based on the idea that Scripture says it. And here's why. If you and I share that common ground and we both believe the Bible, no problem. What do I say to someone who doesn't believe the Bible? What do I say? So here's how it goes. Why do I believe what the Bible says? And this isn't rhetorical. Why do I believe why why should I believe what the Bible says? What's the Sunday school answer that we all know? You everyone everyone's whispering mush mouth. I know you know this. It's God's word. That's why I should believe what the Bible says. How do I know it's God's word? Because it says in the Bible. Why should I trust what I read in the Bible? Because it's God's word. You see how this is a circle that we can't get out of? That's not helpful. It's not helpful if I want to make this case to anyone else who isn't a Christian. It would be a much better and stronger case if I could say, well, Jesus died, and now he's alive again. And he believed the Bible. And on that basis, I think there's a good case to believe the Bible. That's not circular. So that's the question, of course, that we're trying to answer, but that's the case. If you're going to get to Scripture that way, that's a much stronger case. So multiple sources. Let's look at some non-Christian sources. Now, I mentioned this gentleman before, Flavius Josephus. He was a Jewish historian who uh, wrote what we're about to look at in the late 90s of the first century. For historical context, when, around when was Jesus crucified? History people? Anyone? Scholars would say sometime between 30 and 33, mostly and more towards 30. That's around the time we're talking about. So this is about 60-ish years later. Josephus is writing. Now, full disclosure, this particular passage of Josephus, Josephus mentions Jesus twice in his writings because he wasn't primarily concerned with that. He was writing a history of the Jewish people for a Roman emperor at the Roman emperor's request. Jesus doesn't factor into Jewish history because not really anyway, in terms, of, in terms of this. So Josephus mentions him twice. This passage is contested at the scholarly level because most scholars, even conservative scholars, will say it sure seems like the manuscript that we have was altered by a Christian a couple hundred years after Josephus wrote. Now, Jesus, Josephus wrote around then, but the manuscripts we have aren't from here. They're from the three, mid-300s. And I've highlighted every part that scholars would say that probably wasn't in the original, just so we can see what was probably part of the original and what what almost assuredly wasn't. Full disclosure. So Josephus writes this. Now there was, about this time, Jesus, a wise man, insert probable addition, 
if it be lawful to call him a man. Yeah, Josephus probably didn't write that. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. Probably not Josephus. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him. Skipping down to the end. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct to this day. He probably didn't add, for he appeared to them alive again on the third day, and the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. Probably not. But here's the point. Our fact is that Jesus died and was buried. Pilate suggested that he be condemned to the cross. No one disputes that in this passage. That's what we're after. We can grant, yeah, the other stuff was probably added later by a Christian. Doesn't hurt this. That's not what we're trying to prove. Jesus died under Pontius Pilate. Let's look at another source. This was a Roman historian named Tacitus. Around 116, give or take, into the early uh, second century, Tacitus writes this. Now, he's talking about Nero and the persecution of the Christians. Now, consequently, to get rid of the report, the report that... So, Rome burned in the early second century. And there was a rumor floating around that Nero had the fire set so that he could put it out and look like a good guy. To get rid of that report, the rumor goes, or the history goes, that Nero blamed the Christians instead and just said, here's a persecuted group that no one really likes. Let's make them the scapegoat so I get from... And this is what Tacitus, a Roman historian, is writing. Um, So Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, likely a misspelling of Christ, from whom the name Christians had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. He was a big fan of Roman culture as a Roman. Kind of cynical. But this is what he says. He, he tells us about a group of Christians. He tells us about where the name Christians get their origin and what happened to the leader. He suffered the extreme penalty under Tiberius. Last one we're going to look at. And by the way, these are not the only three non-Christian ancient sources, but for the sake of time, these are the three we're looking at. Lucian. Now, I can, this is a wide dating. We know that he wrote it before 180 because he died in 180. But we don't actually know when he wrote this. So it could be well before 180. But again, some point in the second century, Lucian, who was not a fan of Christians, he was a satirist, and he basically was writing this making fun of Christians. His main character here is writing a biography of uh, someone named Peregrine or Peregrinus, So he says, it was then that Peregrinus learned the wondrous lore of Christians by associating with their priests and tribes in Palestine. Again, by the second century, Christianity had been a little more established. Whom they still worship, the man who was crucified in Palestine because he introduced this new cult into the world. Now, just from these three non-Christian, non-Christian friendly sources, what do we know? We know that there was a man named Jesus, also called Christus. We know that he died by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate in a region of Judea called Palestine. We know that it happened during the reign of Tiberius, which, by the way, ended in AD 37, so it had to have happened before then. 
from this, we know a movement started that spread to Rome. And that the movement itself was centered around the worship of Jesus as a God. That's a lot that we can know about Jesus from outside of the New Testament. Is there anything there that is in direct conflict with what we read in the Bible? If you read Acts, if you read the history of the church, this, is, this squares. So again, credibility we can establish from outside of the Bible that confirms what the Bible says about how Christianity got started and what Christians believed. So there's our multiple sources, because we're going to look at the New Testament as well. What about early? How early can we get? Those aren't particularly early. They're earlier than the 400-year gap, but they're not particularly early. For this, we do need to look at the New Testament because the fact is the New Testament is the earliest, best sources we have if we want to know about Jesus. Has anyone heard of the Corinthian Creed? Okay. Mine's going to be blown. 1 Corinthians, specifically 1 Corinthians 15, might be the most important passage in all of the New Testament when it comes to talking about the resurrection. Here's why. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lays out that he delivered to you, the Corinthians, what he also received. Now, many commentators will look at that, and, and, and the idea there is that this is, this is Jewish language. This is rabbinic Jewish pharisaical language of the idea of a, a student receiving the traditions from his teacher, like Paul was from Saul from Gamaliel. So this idea of passing along something of this isn't mine, this is what I got. And the, the, if you read the passage in this larger context, here's... We know that it isn't Paul who's saying this because it sounds very not Paul-like. There's a repetition of and that, and that, and that, which is very creedal in its language. It was easy to memorize, and it had a very strong formula that follows. And it is these four things. Jesus died, he was buried, he was raised, he appeared. That's, that's the essence of the creed that Paul's saying, I received it, I passed it on to you. He died, he was buried, he was raised, he appeared. So, this is where it gets interesting, because not only is the Bible dated a certain time, but there's actually things in the Bible that are younger, that are older than the Bible itself. Here's what I mean by that. This creed that Paul receives is obviously older than the book in which we find it in 1 Corinthians 15, because Paul already knew it when he wrote it. So if we cross-reference this with learning about what Paul says about him and his journeys in Galatians, Specifically, chapter 1 and chapter 2, here's what we find out. We know that Paul converted. Paul says in these passages that he went away after he converted for three years. And then, and only then, he went into Jerusalem and he met for 15 days with Peter. And he also met James, the, the leaders of the Jerusalem church at that point. And then he says he did not go back to Jerusalem after that for another 14 years. So, if we can get some traction on a hard date, we can start to work this backwards. Here's how this goes. 1 Corinthians, most scholars date to some point in the 50s. Now, there are some books that Paul wrote that critical, skeptical, or liberal scholars would not accredit to Paul. They would say, Paul didn't actually write these. Conservative scholars would say, yes, he did. But here's the thing. Galatians and 1 Corinthians are neither of those. No one argues about whether or not Paul wrote these books. Even liberal scholars will say Paul wrote Galatians and he wrote 1 Corinthians, and he wrote them in the mid-50s. Some will give you from 53 to 57, so for the sake of cutting down the middle, we'll just say around 55 AD, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. 
We also can corroborate that Paul was in Corinth establishing the Corinthian church to which he can say, I delivered, past tense, like when I was there making this church, to you what I received. Paul was there around 51 to 52. How do we know this? In Acts 18, the, the account Luke gives of Paul in Corinth mentions that Gallio was the proconsul of Corinth at the time. We know from Roman records that this is when Gallio was the proconsul in Corinth, around 51, 52. So Paul was there sometime around this time. Which means that if you account for travel, that the latest that Paul could have visited Jerusalem the second time would have been in the early 50s. If he, was, if he came directly from Jerusalem to Corinth, like give him no time to do hardly anything else, he's still in the early 50s visiting Jerusalem the second time. So what do we walk back from that? When did he go to Jerusalem the first time? 14 years earlier which puts Paul in Jerusalem for the first time meeting with Peter and James in the mid to late 30s. That's just when he compared notes based on his experience, and he learned, yep, yep, they believe the same thing I do about Jesus. Which means this Corinthian creed, Jesus died, he was buried, he rose, and he appeared can be dated within three to nine years. Most scholars will say five. Within five years of Jesus' death, this is what Christians believed. I don't know if I can stress to you how insane it is that we can get that early. This does not happen when you look at ancient documents. You cannot get that early to the event. It just doesn't happen. Like I said, we've got 400 years between Julius Caesar's life and when he was written. We've got few hundred years between Aristotle when he lived and when we have the first manuscripts that we can get as early as we can. We can get within five years of Jesus' death. That is too soon for people to make up things that didn't happen. It's just too soon. And to say that resurrection belief happened later, the first Christians didn't believe it, they did. They did. Within five years, give or take, they were, this was the core of what Christians believed. Now, the Gospels don't get us that close. 1 Corinthians 15 is by far the best source in terms of early, but the Gospels can get us close. Here's why. We'll start with Acts. Now, I mentioned earlier that scholars have a problem with Acts. Some date it in the 90s. Some date it pre-70. Here's why. In Acts, actually even in, in, uh, in Matthew, Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. Then in AD 70, the destruction of the temple happens. So if you're not going to hold the prophecy as a philosophy, so well, that can't be what happened. No one can predict the future. Then you have to date the books that predict it after as a post-dating. But if you're going to take them at face value and say, I don't know if they did or didn't, it's an open question. Here's the case for why Acts should be dated before AD 70, before the destruction. It does not tell us about the siege of Jerusalem. This was a big deal for Jews and Christians living in Jerusalem where the church started. If they had been there and endured it, you would expect it to happen to be recorded in Acts. If you find a history book about the United States, and the last chapter details the uh, presidency of Bill Clinton and the transition into the presidency of George W. Bush, 
what is the most reasonable thing to conclude about that history book? That it redacted all the information about President Obama and President Trump? It just for political reasons, didn't want to include it? We don't, didn't want to talk about the war in Iraq, didn't want to talk about Afghanistan? Or is it a more reasonable conclusion that that's when the book was written? It was written, and that was the latest things that had happened. Nothing else had happened at that point. So that's part of the argument here. We also have no death of Peter recorded in the book of Acts. He died around 65. No death of Paul. When Acts ends, Paul is still in prison awaiting trial. He died in 64. And there's no death of James, the brother of Jesus. He died in 62. But we can do better. Luke, as a gospel, Luke Acts is sort of a two-part, one book, two parts, right? And it predates Acts. We know this because the first two verses of Acts say, in my previous account, Theophilus, which means Luke came before Acts. So Luke was written before that, even if you just give it a year or two. And this is where it gets interesting. Paul quotes Luke. He quotes Luke in 1 Timothy, which is a controversial book if you're a liberal scholar. But conservative scholars would date that to right before Paul died. He was writing these last few books. But more importantly, he quotes Luke's gospel in 1 Corinthians, which is not a contested book, and we already know is around mid-50s. So now we've pushed it from the early 60s back to the mid-50s of the gospels. Luke had to already be a known quantity for Paul to use it and refer to it as Scripture. Which, by the way, we know it was Luke. In this account, Paul's talking about communion. And he talks about the account of communion, or the, the Last Supper, where Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. That line, in remembrance of me, only occurs in Luke's account. Not in Matthew, not in Mark, not in John. So we know it's Luke that he's quoting because of that. Luke borrows passages, verses, of his gospel from both Matthew and Mark. He borrows about 350 verses from Matthew and about 250 from Mark, I might have those switched, but he borrows a few hundred verses from both, which means Matthew and Mark were written before Luke. You can't borrow for something that doesn't exist yet. Matthew borrows from Mark, and most scholars today will tell you Mark was the first gospel written for these reasons. So if you're work, walking this back and you're saying, okay, even if I just allow a couple years in between, just a couple years, I mean, there could be more, but let's just take as conservative as we can. That puts Mark's first gospel account sometime in the late 40s, early 50s. Scholarship range will give you 45 to 60, which is a really wide range, but realistically, sometime probably late 40s, early 50s. Now, that's early. Not as early as five years, but we're talking between 15 and 25 years after. Again, too early. People who would have been eyewitnesses are still alive 15 to 25 years later. So are they credible? Well, let's see. Now, this is another mildly controversial statement, but for the sake of being as honest and fair and neutral as I can be, I'll just say the gospel accounts do not differ until after the burial. In other words, there's, there, if the gospels are going to be attacked for their credibility, it usually comes in the details that they record about the resurrection narrative and things that don't seem to line up. So was there one person at the tomb or were there two? Was it a man or was it an angel? Were there one angel or were there two angels? Uh, were, you know, all, all these different details. Did Jesus tell the disciples to go to Galilee or did he appear to them in Jerusalem? Or did he appear to them in Jerusalem and tell them not to leave Jerusalem? Then how could he appear to them in Galilee? These are all the things. Again, this is part of the 
seminar on the reliability of Scripture. These can all be harmonized, but I'm just saying this is where the credibility is attacked. They're in perfect unison leading up to Jesus died and he was buried. It's only after that where some of these things start to factor in. So in terms of telling a cohesive story, death and burial is as cohesive as it gets. And they all contain similar embarrassing details. So what do I mean by embarrassing? How, does the go- how do the Gospels in general treat the disciples? How do they portray them? They're, they're knuckleheads? That's, a, that's the best description I've ever heard. Yeah, they... So listen, if you're making up a story about these guys who are the founders of the, the group that you're now a part of, if you're making up a story... How should you? How would you want to portray them? Well, right? These guys are credible. These are great men. Look at how heroic they are. They are not portrayed that way. They don't get it. They just don't get it. They, they, ha- they don't believe Jesus, even though he gives them reasons to. He shows them a miracle and then says, have faith, and then they don't. They're afraid all the time. They don't trust they make big, big mistakes. Peter denies Jesus when the pressure is on. He does not come through. These are So again, embarrassing details don't make it true, but they lend credibility to the fact that that's probably how it happened. And they're just reporting it as it happened, even though it's not a good reflection on, hey, join our club. We're a bunch of cowards who didn't really pull through when, when it was clutch moment. But that's how they're portrayed in the Gospels. That's important. Lastly, Another reason for, for lending credibility to this, um, this particular point about Jesus died and was, was buried is the nature of crucifixion. How many of you have actually studied crucifixion as a topic? Anyone? Okay. Fair warning. I have tried to keep this as clinical as possible, and I have not, I'm not showing any scenes from the Passion or anything like that uh, for shock value. I just want you to understand what actually happened based on what we know of the practice of Roman crucifixion at the time to help us establish that Jesus did, in fact, die. Here's what we know. These are taken from a Journal of the American Medical Association article that was written on the topic of did Jesus die on the cross in 1986. There's been more research done as, early, as late as 2011, 2012, and we're going to look at some of that as well. But in terms of, there, there's parts of this crucifixion process, based on what we know. The scourging. The Romans would, uh, they would tie you to a post, naked, with your back exposed, and they would use something called a flagellum or cat and nine tails. What that was is depicted on the left-hand side. Now, this is a small, relatively small whip, leather strips, and into the ends and along the sides of that leather strip, they would sew in various materials, pieces of uh, lamb and sheep bone that had been broken and so was jagged, uh, pieces of metal, uh, pieces of glass, so that when the whip was, was drawn across the body, it would wrap around and it would dig in and it would catch so that when it was pulled away, it would rip the back open, it would rip pieces off. Now, the Jews had rules for how many times you could hit a person when they beat someone with rods. It was 40 times. And to be extra pious, just to be careful that they didn't break the law, they would take one off that. That's why Paul was beaten 30 with, by rods 39 times when he talks about that account. The Romans didn't have such a rule. The Romans had one rule when they scourged someone before crucifixion. Don't let them die. As long as they didn't kill you, 
They could, they could do this to you as long and as many times as they wanted. That was the only rule they had. They got in trouble if you died, but they could get you as close to that as they could. And there's good reasons to think that with Jesus they did. So Jesus, after this after being um, sweating as he's praying in the garden, being ca- arrested, kept up all night, beaten, deprived of food and water, and now he's had his back exposed. Some accounts of this say that there was very likely exposed bone and even exposed organs through the back because of how much was removed. So this is the state of Jesus before anything else. Then, Jesus did not carry the full cross. That's not how it worked. The the stripes, which is the main large pole section, was already pre-installed at the place of execution. Jesus carried something called the crossbar, the patabulum. Now, this alone, estimates would say, weighed somewhere around 75 to 85 pounds. It's a solid piece of wood. On my best day, and I don't consider myself particularly weak, I'd have a hard time carrying something like this on my back for any reasonable amount of time. And the estimates are it was about 500 yards from where he was put, put on this to the... So Matthew's account says he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. And it's no wonder he couldn't do it. Um, he had this piece of wood not only put on him, but after he's exhausted and beating and put on his scourged back, and someone else had to carry it for him. So he gets to the place of execution. Now, this is a medical diagram of, from what we know, we have actually found one um, foot, a skeletal foot, still attached to a piece of wood from a crucifixion victim in the first century. And the reason it was still attached to the wood is because the nail was driven, the spike was about five to seven inches long. It was driven through the heels. But then after, on the other side of the wood, the nail was bent so that it couldn't be removed. So when the body disintegrated, the heel stayed stuck because it couldn't go anywhere. The nails did not go through the palms like is usually depicted because as soon as you put a nail through the palm, it can't support any weight. So as soon as you put weight on it, it just rips up through. Um, The alternative would be tying, but there's good reasons to believe that they used nails in this part of the world at this time. And the nails were put here, just below the wrist, in between where the ulna and the radius cross. So those two bones can support the weight of the human frame. And it's the way that the nails went in, uh, based on the medical diagram, it would have severed the nerve that runs right up here. So excruciatingly painful to have a nerve severed. Um, Hot, flashing pain. um, And would have cut some tendons, which would have, as you see there, would have locked the hand into a constricted position that you couldn't really move out of. Yet it would have missed all the major arteries that run up through the arm. So you're not killing someone by putting it in. It's just excruciating. The same with the feet. Now all this results in a position on the cross where you get into something called paradoxical respiration is the medical term for it. And it's basically what happens when normally if you put, put your hand on your diaphragm, take a big deep breath in, your diaphragm expands out. And then when you exhale, it goes back in. Paradoxical respiration occurs when you're hunched into a place and you can't really get a breath and you're actually suffocating by being in this position where it it creates the opposite effect, where normally inhaling is our active process and exhaling is passive, the reverse becomes true. Air seeps in during inhalation, but you have to actively push it out of your lungs. And as such, your diaphragm goes in when you inhale instead of out. 
it's common in trauma, it's common in some other medical conditions, but there's good reasons to believe because of the way that he would have been slumped over that he's actively having to pull up on those nails here in order to create enough space to actively exhale before he slumps back down and the air just kind of seeps into his lungs. Now that would have created all kinds of secondary things such as fluid in and around the lungs, would have created, his heart would have been working significantly harder to try and push pump blood, especially as he's having less and less blood. You have to work harder to do that. And then finally, we have in John's account, which is the latest account, but we have an interesting statement where um, Jesus is declared already dead by the centurion before this happens. There was one person in the Roman guard who was responsible for declaring death. He declares Jesus dead. They don't break his legs because they didn't need to speed up his death. But just to be sure, they put a spear into his side. We don't know which side it went on, but by a lot of uh, some accounts, more likely than not, it was the right side. If Jesus was suffering all these things, and what can be concluded reasonably from a medical perspective, Jesus had a lot of fluid buildup in and around his lungs because of the lack of respiration and the asphyxiation and all that he was going through, the trauma. A spear that would have entered and it would have first pierced his lungs, causing what seems to be water, but was mostly just a clear fluid that had built up around his lungs to come out. Pushing past that, it would have pierced the right side of his heart, where any blood that was pulled would have then come out. Now, we've, medical people have wondered for a while, so how, doesn't blood clot when you die? It says Jesus was already dead. Blood doesn't come out of a corpse. It just doesn't run freely. It clots, it settles, lowest point of gravity, all that stuff. Jesus shouldn't have been bleeding. I mean, some people think, have proposed that Je- this is what killed Jesus because he was bleeding. The latest medical research to come out from a hematologist says, this is his opinion. He says, I don't think Jesus died of asphyxiation. I don't think he died from the spear wound. Here's, here's what he thinks. Traumatic shock, which I think we can all agree happened to Jesus, combined with two other factors that he cites in his paper. Dehydration, which Jesus would have very obviously been suffering from, of sweating, being deprived of liquids, and now bleeding out, losing a lot of his liquids. And hypothermia, around April, in this part of the world, temperatures hover in the 40s, 50s. He was naked. He had lost a lot of blood. All combine to produce what sometimes, but commonly, can occur in traumatic shock victims, something called coagulopathy. This is basically when your body loses its ability to clot blood, you can't stop bleeding. Your body loses the ability to stop bleeding. So Jesus continues to bleed, continues to bleed from all the wounds and everything on his back. So in layman's terms, Jesus bled to death. It explains a couple things. explains why Jesus died so quickly. He died in six hours. Crucifixion could last days. And you even have in Luke's account, or Mark's account, Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was dead. That's consistent with this, saying he shouldn't, why is he dead? Make sure he's dead, because the body was about to be released. But it also explains the blood and water in John. Normally, blood clots when you die and settles, but not if Jesus had lost the ability to clot his blood. It would have still run freely, even though he was dead. Again, we can't be sure, but there's a lot of plausibility from a medical perspective that all this happens. So the medical, the JAMA article from 1986, oh, I'll get there in a sec. Here's a question that comes up. But couldn't have Jesus survived? I mean, isn't it at least logically possible that he could have survived all this? Maybe. So here's one account that we know of from Josephus. Josephus had some sway with the Romans. 
He's coming back. I'll summarize this. He's coming back from a trip. He sees a whole bunch of people lined up alongside of the road, crucified. The Romans would do this to send a message. He recognizes three of them. It's people he knows. So he goes to Titus, and he pleads, please take them down. And he tells him, and Titus says, okay, take them down. And we don't know how far along these people were in their crucifixion process, but it says, Titus said, take them down and get them the very best Roman medical care, which is the best in the world at the time. Two of them died anyway, and one of them recovered. Is it at least possible that someone could survive crucifixion? Yeah, we have one account in all of antiquity of someone doing that. Under the very best medical care that could be provided at the time, at an indeterminate point in how long they had been crucified. Now, we can pretty assuredly conclude Jesus did not receive the best medical care, nor could he have procured it, nor could the disciples have procured it on his behalf. Leading the JAMA article in 1986 to conclude any interpretation based on the idea that Jesus didn't die on the cross is at odds with modern medical knowledge. There's just no way to conclude that and be consistent with what we know about human physiology and what happened. So it is almost airtight that Jesus died on the cross and that the burial accounts that follow up from that happened. So it was a lot. We're, how are we doing on, on lunch, ladies? Are we we're in a good spot? Okay, so it's actually where I wanted to be by lunch. So before we, before we break... Yay, it worked. Any questions? That's our first fact. The other ones are going to be faster. Yeah, please. Uh, we don't know. So the question was, did, it, did the Josephus account mention whether or not the one who survived was scourged? We don't know. We do know that it was common practice at the time to scourge someone prior to crucifixion, although it didn't necessarily have to happen. So we just, we just don't know. And that's part of the, the question is we, we can't know how early on into the crucifixion this person was. We can't know how severely they were beaten. We can't know really anything other than they were being crucified in process and they, they survived under the best medical care at the time. But the other two who were in exactly the same position didn't make it despite the best medical care. That's what we know. Yeah. It differs. There were at least three or four different kinds of cross patterns. The towel cross is the one that was used in that part of the world. There was also an X pattern for the hands and the feet to be pulled apart. We just know from historical records that the towel cross is probably the one that was used in Ro by the Romans at that point in time in that region. Um, and in some other places, they did tie the hands with rope. Um, but it's very likely that nails were used based on archaeological evidence and other things like that. Any other questions? Well, and actually I would add to that. The gospel accounts, if they're to be believed, would confirm that nails were used because when Jesus appears in John's gospel, he says, see, see my hands and my feet. Ropes wouldn't have left marks, right? Oh, others? Yeah, nails, nails, were, nails were typical. Yep. Okay, so a couple things about lunch, and please correct me if I'm wrong. But... Here's what we're going to do. We're going to dismiss by table, uh, and we have two different lines for lunch. We have a, 
regular, normal, I don't know what we would call it, lunch, and I believe that's, that's over here. Okay, and then we have an alternative lunch line over here, and that is for, what, what is this approved for? Every, well, anyone can eat it, but... So, vegan, dairy-free, yeah, you did have to sign up for that one, so... Don't snatch my vegan food, all right? All right, cool. So we're going to dismiss by table. Um, let's do this. In the interest of time, we're doing good on time, but I want to make sure we keep doing well on time. Let's do uh, 30 minutes for lunch. So I have 11.43. Let's just round up. We'll make it at 12.15. We'll pick back up, unless everyone is here and ready to go sooner than that. But let's just say 12.15, and we'll get started. So we'll dismiss by table. We'll uh, pop some tunes on here, and then we'll get your food on. All right. Can I, just, can I just take a moment and ask us all to please show our appreciation for, for lunch and everyone who provided excellent. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay. Uh, we're going to try and stave off the post-lunch coma. As good as it was, naps are a problem. So here's where we're going to go. We've done one fact. That's the most time we're going to spend developing any one fact because there's so many facets to the first historical fact. We're going to spend less time on each of the next three, and we're going to develop those. So page number four, here it is, coming at you. Fact number two, say this as provocatively as I can, something happened to the body of Jesus. Now, some scholars will just phrase this to say the tomb was empty. That's basically what I'm saying here. Something happened to the body of Jesus. And there are, there are liberal scholars who will say, yeah, I mean, I mean, this is pretty much something everyone will agree with. It didn't say on the cross. Something happened to his body. Some will say it was buried. Some liberal scholars will say that it was thrown into a common grave. Um, some will say that we don't know what happened to it, but it was, it was somewhere, and then it disappeared. Whether you think it was stolen or... Uh, whether it was left out for scavengers or whether it was actually buried the way that the Gospels depict, Jesus' body could not be produced when the time came to produce a body. That's what we're basically saying here. So, we get to this a little bit more roundabout. So there's a few passages, a few things we're going to look at. One, the empty tomb is sort of implied. And this ties in with the, the burial. Like, yes, he was buried, and we get there kind of by the same way that we get that the, the tomb was empty. It's implied in the Corinthian Creed that we looked at earlier, where Paul says that he was buried, and then that he was raised, and that he appeared. And we get there because, remember, looking at the Jewish context, who was Paul? Which, out of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes, which faction did Paul fall into? Does anyone know? He was a Pharisee. So as a Pharisee, what did he believe when he says that Jesus was raised? That carries with it the connotation of literal bodily resurrection. It wouldn't have used that phrase in the way that a Sadducee or an Essene would have. Well, a Sadducee wouldn't, wouldn't have used the phrase. So it's implied then that if he was buried and then he was raised, the physical body left the place in which he was buried. And we get that, like I said, the earliest Christians, within five years, they believed that that was the case. Another couple things to consider, the criterion of embarrassment. So we've already talked about the embarrassment as it, as it 
pertains to the gospel accounts about the disciples and their credibility. But something else to consider, there's two primary pieces that support this uh, empty tomb or something happening to the body. The first is that women were the initial witnesses as depicted in the Gospels. Does anyone know why this is embarrassing? It's not something we would consider embarrassing today. Please. Yeah, they weren't considered credible. Uh, so this, this is embarrassing to talk about on the heels of, I think it was a week ago or so, International Women's Day, uh, how far we've come. In first century Palestine, um, there's rabbinic writings about the fact that a woman's testimony counted as, if you couldn't find two men to corroborate something, you could get a man and, and two women. Uh, in other words, a woman's testimony counted as half of, of a man's. And they were considered, and this is also in rabbinic writing, there was, they were, and Greek writing, they were considered to be uh, basically too emotional, is the way I'm paraphrasing it. And there was the understanding at the time that women were not as good in the smarts as men. Obviously, we know different, but at the time and in the culture, again, like we said about the disciples, if you're making up a story... This is not who you would have as your initial witnesses. They weren't considered credible in the time. So the fact that all of them are unified in saying women were the initial witnesses, it either means there was collusion, which is possible again, but we're not necessarily interested in what's possible. We want what's plausible, or that they were reporting the facts as they happened. The other is that Joseph of Arimathea who's depicted as being the one who actually asked for the body and, and buried it in a new tomb, an unused tomb, is by scholars considered kind of unlikely to have been a early Christian invention. What I mean by that is, again, if, if the Christians two or three centuries in are sort of revising history to make this fit and justify what they believe, Joseph of Arimathea is not the person necessarily that you would pick to be the one claiming the body of Jesus and burying it. Why not? Anyone have any thoughts on that? He was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. <laughs> who just declared... Uh, who, what was the group that condemned Jesus to die? The Pharisees. This is part of the group that just crucified Jesus. And now one of them out of, I mean, at the very least, out of interest for providing an honorable burial for someone that he considered uh, the opposition but a, a, a good teacher, at the very least, is hard to kind of digest. Like, where, where were the disciples? Right? Why didn't they bury Jesus? Because they ran for the hills. They thought they were going to... So, again, they tucked tail and they ran... So it's embarrassing that someone other than the disciples had to bury Jesus. Now, it does say, I think in John, maybe in Luke, that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple, but he was a disciple in the same way that Nicodemus was a disciple. In other words, he didn't want anyone to know about it. So he's sort of trying to straddle the line here of like, I, I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, but I don't want anyone to know that. He's not a strong heroic, courageous person. He's trying to use his influence to, to give Jesus an honorable burial. The other part about it is this. 
if something else happened, again, when we're talking about how we weigh things as historians, if something else happened, we don't have any historical records that could corroborate it. In terms of a historical account of what happened at the burial and who buried Jesus, Joseph of Marathia is the only game in town. There is no competing narrative in any historical document, secular or otherwise, about what happened here. So unless new evidence comes to light, there's really not a reason to disbelieve that this is what happened. This is the only narrative we have, and it's no one has ever contradicted it. So it's the best we have. And then the criterion of simplicity, and this is something that I actually, I'm going to borrow my phone for here, Bob. It should, the music should stop. Yes, it did. So could I have, I'm going to ask someone for some audience participation. Could someone look up Mark chapter 15 and as loudly as you can, you don't have a mic, please read out in your big boy or big girl voice, the uh, Mark fifteen forty two through 6, 8. Whenever, whenever you get it. And, and just call it out. We're going to do this guerrilla style. Just... That's not, honestly, that's, so it continues with the narrative, I'll just for, for sake of time. Um, so d- as you're hearing this and you're thinking about the, the, the tone, the language, the pace, Mark's account is very, honestly, dry. It's kind of matter of fact. It's very Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am, kind of, kind of deal. Now, Mark is considered by conservative standards to be a very early account of what happened. I want to read you what is considered by all accounts a later account, something called from the so-called Gospel of Peter. Now, Peter didn't write this because it was written at the earliest around 150 into maybe 200s AD. So it was something called a part of the pseudepigrapha. In other words, it was someone writing, claiming the name of Peter, but wasn't in fact, in fact Peter, because Peter was dead. We know he died in around AD 65. So this is what the Gospel of Peter writes about 100 and 150 years later from the death of Jesus and how it accounts the story of the resurrection. This is just part of it. But in the night in which the Lord's day dawned, when the soldiers were safeguarding it two by two in every watch, there was a loud voice in heaven. And they saw that the heavens were opened and that two males who had much radiance had come down from there and came near the sepulcher. But that stone, which had been thrust against the door, having rolled by itself, went a distance off to the side. And the sepulcher opened, and both young men entered. And so the soldiers, having seen, awakened the centurion and the elders, for they too were present, safeguarding. And while they were relating what they had seen, again, they see three males who have come out of the sepulcher, and the two supporting the other one, and a cross following them, and the head of the two reaching unto heaven, and that of the one being led out by the hand by them going beyond the heavens. And they were hearing a voice from the heavens saying, Have you made proclamation to the fallen asleep? And 
uh, a voice was heard from the cross, yay. Okay. Now, a lot more time has passed, and it seems pretty likely that's what a historian would look at and conclude, yeah, that's probably some embellishment going on there, right? So you have a rock flying by itself off of the door. Three people walk in. All these witnesses are there. How do we know these witnesses are there? None of them have told us that they were there. Who's watching this who isn't one of these people? We don't know. And then three of them come out, and their heads are so tall, they go up to the clouds. And then Jesus' head is above that. They're so tall. And then this floating cross comes out behind them and is talking to a voice coming from heaven. This is what we would call, and the historians would call, the, the criterion of simplicity. In other words, how straightforward and simple is the account that we're given? The account given by the Gospel of Peter is much later, and so there is room for legendary embellishment to be introduced. And this is the kind of thing that you would see if legendary embellishment had been introduced into account where enough time has gone by. By the way, many historians will... They'll differ on this by a few years, but the general, general consensus thanks, is that in order to get this kind of legendary embellishment into historical accounts, you need about 50 years of time to pass. And that's just simply because you need all the people who could correct that to die before anyone can contradict it. And so if at least that much time has gone on, or more, more is better, then you can say things like this and no one's there to correct or to, or to corroborate it. In Mark's account, people were still alive. And in fact, in the, in the account of appearances, which we'll get to in 1 Corinthians, where Paul talks about these witnesses, he says, and many of them are still alive. If you want to know if I'm telling you the truth, go talk to them. I mean, he seems to be opening himself very much up to the idea that he could be contradicted, but he's confident enough in what he's saying that he knows he won't be. He's saying, well, there are the witnesses. Go talk. It's very different. So Mark's account is very, very much simpler. Now, it does include something miraculous, and that might be a reason why more liberal scholars would say, well, it's a miracle, like Bart Ehrman. And since we know miracles can't happen, that can't have happened. But again, your bias is showing... We're just reading the account going, are we, we don't want to start by saying, since we know that miracles can't happen, or since we know God doesn't exist, any more than we want to start by saying, well, since we know that the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God, everyone's starting from a position at that point where you're going to end up at reaching the conclusion that you already want to reach. And that's not helpful to anybody, no matter which extreme you take. And so that's where if we're going to be neutral and just say, here's what it says happened. Are there good reasons for believing that what it says happened actually happened? If there are, then that's something we need to wrestle with. So Mark's account is far simpler. That lends credibility. There's also an empty tomb assumed in Matthew's account. Does, does anyone know or recall the, the account of the guards at the tomb when they discover that it's empty? They go to the chief priests, and what do they say? It, it, it's empty. There's no body there. And what did the chief priest say to them? Here's a bunch of gold. <laughs> Go tell everyone you fell asleep. Which, by the way, if they, were, if they were part of the temple guard, would have been bad. But if they were Romans, would have assuredly resulted in their execution. If you fell asleep at your post as a Roman guard, you were done. 
So it's more likely that this was a temple guard because you're like, you're asking me to commit suicide. No. Um, but go tell them you fell asleep and the disciples came and stole the body. Now there's a problem, of course. If you're asleep, how do you know the disciples stole the body? <laughs> but again, the fact that the story, and he goes on and says, this account has been, is being spread to this day at the time. Uh, and indeed, into the first and second century, we actually read non-Christian accounts who offer this as an explanation. So this account got propagated somewhere. Matthew says, one of the earliest accounts, well, this is where it started. And the idea here is that if Jesus' body was still in the tomb, why do they have to come up with this story to explain what happened? Listen, the Romans nor the Jewish leaders wanted this story about Jesus to propagate. Neither of them had an interest in allowing this cult, as Lucian called it, to flourish and to thrive. The easiest way for both the Jews or the Romans to squash this would have been to pull the body of Jesus out of his tomb and parade it through the streets of Jerusalem. It's the easiest way to put this whole business to rest. They didn't do that. One inference is because they couldn't do that. The body was not able to be produced. Now, again, from that, we can't automatically say, well, it means he rose, but it does mean there was no body there to account for. That's the most we can say, but that's enough to to go here. So that's our second fact. Something happened to the body. Here's our third. This is a two-slide one. So at various times and places, and I'm, I'm... Summarizing what's there on your sheet. At various times and places, different people, both alone and in groups, experienced post-mortem appearances of Jesus. So before I switch, at various times and places, different people, both alone and in groups, experienced post-mortem appearances of Jesus that led them afterward to proclaim that he had been raised by God from the dead. So not only did they, they thought that they experienced something, but then on the basis of that experience, they concluded Jesus has been raised from the dead by God. And again, we're not saying that they did experience something, because liberal scholars wouldn't agree with that. But everyone agrees they thought they experienced something, and that experience was enough to cause them to to say that this happened to Jesus. So, our first, we're going to go back, we're going back once again to 1 Corinthians. As I said, it's one of the most important, if not the most important passage in the New Testament about the resurrection. Here are all the appearances summarized by Paul in 1 Corinthians. So the first is Kephas, which is the Greek version of Peter, right? So everyone knows this is Peter. And then the 12, and then 500 and more. It actually is more than 500 in the account. And then James, and then the apostles, and then Paul. Least of all, to me, is on one, one untimely born, Paul. Saul at the time. So these are the appearances that are summarized. Now, Some of them we don't necessarily have corroboration for, but we do have corroboration for some of them in multiple sources, right? So Luke, if Luke is quoting Mark, that's not two sources because it came from Mark. Luke's just quoting it. So that counts as one source. So we're talking about separate accounts that didn't borrow from one another, right? So the first, 
Mary Magdalene is multiply attested. John's gospel records her, and you find it in Matthew as well. The twelfth, which this is important because it's a group, is mentioned in 1 Corinthians, also in Luke's account, also in John's account. And then unnamed groups. So not necessarily the 500, because the only time that specific designation occurs is in 1 Corinthians. But we do have accounts of groups of disciples seeing appearances. And that is generically mentioned in 1 Corinthians, in Acts, and in John. So again, multiple attestation does not make it true, but it does make it a little more credible. Now, this is an important thing. We're going to get into, well, what exactly explains that? Again, we're talking about the ancient Jewish context being the right interpretive context. What would an ancient first century Jew have understood about visions, about seeing someone or seeing an appearance of someone? Was there such a thing? Yes, actually there was. We have many accounts in the Talmud, which is the ancient Jewish sort of the commentary on the Old Testament, and in the Old Testament itself of um, people seeing visions or appearances of someone who had died before. It was a common part of grieving in the Jewish worldview. They, they didn't expect to see someone, but if they did, that was fine. That was part of it. Seeing someone was not uncommon. But here's the important point. If the earliest disciples or groups of these Jewish people had seen what they understood to be a vision of Jesus, that would, not, that would have confirmed to them that he was dead, not that he was still alive and buried. Because there was a difference in the Jewish mind between seeing a post-mortem appearance. Yeah, that's part of that. That's what happens sometimes when people die. And it confirms to them, yep, they are in fact dead. They're with God right now. Instead of, well, they're up and walking around and talking. They're not, they're not there. They're here. And we know this when we look at an account in Acts chapter 12. Now, I'll summarize this, but this is kind of a hilarious account when you read it from the, the little girl's perspective. So Peter is preaching in Jerusalem, gets himself thrown in prison. Not that uncommon for Peter, especially in early part of Acts. While he's in prison, an angel appears to him. He thinks he's having a vision of an angel. And then when the shackles fall off of his wrists and he's told to stand up, he goes, okay, maybe this is... Maybe this isn't a vision. When the gate opens in front of him and he's just walking out of the prison, he's still thinking, maybe this is a vision. He gets out onto the street, and that's when he realizes as he's making his way back to his house, oh, this is actually happening. So he gets all the way to his house, and he knocks on the, the door. And the disciples, and one of the, the little girls who's there is like a, a, the maidservant, she hears the knock on the door. They're grieving that Peter and John have been arrested. She goes to the door. Everyone else is still inside. Does anyone remember that? What does she do? She sees, she sees that it's Peter. What does she do? She turns around and walks away. She doesn't let Peter in. Why? Because she says it must be his angel. In other words, she thought she was having a vision of Peter. She goes back and tells Peter. She tells the group, hey, I just saw Peter. Peter's at the front door. And they dismiss it. Say, it must be his angel. In other words, you're seeing a vision of a dead person. That confirms to us that Peter actually died in prison. He's dead now. He's with God. Problem is, he keeps knocking. And then they go and they're like, holy cow, it's Peter. 
everyone's surprised. No one expected it. No one expected Peter to be there bodily. And seeing Peter did not confirm in their mind immediately that he was bodily there. That was not, that wasn't part of the deal. So there's, there's this understanding in the Jewish mind at this time that there is a difference between seeing someone who's bodily there and seeing a vision of someone. And if the disciples had thought that they were seeing a vision of Jesus, they would have known the difference because we see that they did know the difference. So, what about hallucinations? What about visions? This is, this is actually the most common objection that, that comes up. We're going to talk about it in a little bit when we explore theories. The most common objection you will read by far is some sort of naturalistic like explanation that involves hallucinations, that involves some kind of self-induced vision, like the guilt, the guilt complex of Paul that Gerd Ludemann subscribes to this theory. Uh, there are many other... Uh, John Dominic Crossan, who's another prominent uh, agnostic Christian scholar, subscribes to something like this. He's in a weird position where he thinks that basically Jesus didn't bodily rise from the dead, but that's okay, that doesn't change anything. I'm not really sure how he squares that in his mind because it either happened or it didn't, and that makes a difference. But that's where he's at. So there's a lot of skeptical scholars. This is where they land. So let's explore that. What about this? Is it possible? Again, it is possible, but we're not interested in what's possible. Almost anything is possible. Is it plausible? Is it probable? Is it reasonable? Four problems with a hallucination theory in general. The first, and Gary Habermas will say this in some of his work, who's a, a, considered one of the foremost Christian experts on the resurrection. Hallucinations are a symptom. They're not a diagnosis. Do I have any, do I have any medical people here who, who are in the medical field? Judy? Are, so, again, I'm not going to put too much pressure on you on the spot, but in terms of hallucinations, if someone's having a hallucination... Correct me if I'm wrong, that's not really something you can bill for. You can't bill for hallucination. Like there's, it means there's something else going on, right? I mean, I don't, I don't recall exactly what your specialty is, but I mean, do you, do you know what some of the other options would be? If someone's having a hallucination, what are some of the options for the diagnosis that would accompany that? Yeah. So trauma, organ, organ issues, chemical imbalances, pH levels, all these different things can trigger hallucinations, uh, but those are the actual problem, not the hallucination itself, which means if the disciples and these groups of people and all this were having hallucinations, there must have been some other bigger cause of those hallucinations. Healthy, normal people don't just have hallucinations. There's something else going on. So that gets into the next issue. There's a physiology to hallucinations. Now, I, I did happen to do a term paper on hallucinations as a medical, medical perspective on this as it pertains to the resurrection in my master's program. So I'm a little more familiar with this than some of the other topics. What I found is the, the consensus of the clinical medical research is this. There are kind of three causes of hallucinations, widely speaking. One is that there has been some kind of change in the structure or the function of the physical brain organ itself. And that could involve 
that could involve trauma, that could involve cancer or tumors, that could involve lesions on the spinal cord from all kinds of various diseases. Um, another cause could be chemical difference in functioning. So there's some kind of chemical imbalance that's causing these. And then the last one is psychological, not physiological, and that has to do with grief and bereavement and all this stuff. But by far, the most number of people who experience hallucinations have some kind of physical cause going on. So again, we also have the psychology. Now, here's the problem with hallucinations. A hallucination is by definition an internal private event in your brain. In other words, if I were standing next to you and you were having a hallucination, there is nothing in the external world that I can see that's going on. It's all happening in your brain. It's a private experience. It's not connected in any way, shape, or form with the external world. That's a problem when you're talking about groups of people experiencing the same thing at the same time, because that medically cannot happen. There, it's similar to dreams. I can't share a dream with someone. That is an internal private event. Um, I can have a similar dream to you, but very likely we're going to diverge on some of the details because you had, a, you had a unique experience, I had a unique experience. They might overlap, but they will not be the same. So when groups of people have hallucinations, it's technically not possible. That's not what a hallucination is. So groups are a problem. And part of that then is, the, the last part is the, the demographics. There are certain types of individuals in the medical research, excuse me, who by virtue of being who they are or have experienced what they've experienced, are far more likely to experience a hallucination than anyone else in the average population group. So people who have diagnosable uh, disorders such as schizophrenia are more likely than your average person in the population to experience hallucinations. Uh, people with certain other types of medical disorders. Now, in terms of bereavement and grief, they've done this study as well. Uh, there is a particular demographic that is most likely, and by most likely I mean 4% of the, of the population, but 4% of the population in, that fits in this demographic is most likely to have a grief or bereavement-induced hallucination. Any guesses on who that is? Widows of long-term happy marriages. Older women who have lost a husband that they have lived with for a very long time. Around 4% will experience a vision, a hallucination of that deceased spouse. Now that alone is an interesting demographic. Every other kind of demographic is lower than that. But that's very different than younger to middle-aged men in a teacher-student relationship that the disciples would have been in with Jesus. They do not fit the demographic profile of the kind of people who have grief and bereavement-induced hallucinations. They just, they just don't. So when you study hallucinations, when you study where, what they are, what causes them, where they occur in the brain, you find things like the vast majority of hallucinations are auditory only. Second to that is visual. Uh, but then all the other senses are way, way, way lower on the, on the list. And what you also find is there's these things called multimodal, meaning more than one sense involved in the hallucination. The more senses you add to a hallucination, the more exceedingly rare that becomes in the clinical literature. 
what we're talking about, if the, the gospel accounts are to be believed, we're talking about hearing Jesus, seeing Jesus, touching Jesus, eating with Jesus, presumably being close enough and touching Jesus to smell Jesus. You have all five senses, or at least four, directly attested that doesn't, that's, that doesn't fit the medical literature. There is no... There's, we've never seen anything like that in terms of medical documented hallucinations. And because of where they tend to occur in the brain with schizophrenic patients and things like that, hallucinations tend to have two qualities, auditory. They tend to be very, very simple in the message that's conveyed because they don't occur in the part of the brain responsible for processing language. So they're very simple in terms of the language they convey. And they tend to be negative in the emotional connotation because of where in the brain they occur. Again, if there's a physical cause, that's what's going to do it. Compare that to the message the disciples came away with. Jesus is risen from the dead. That constitutes a new theological shift that's very un-Jewish uh, in what we know about the Jewish context. And it's caused for not just celebration, but the greatest joy and life-altering perspective that you will ever have. It's not only very, very theologically complex, it's also as positive as you can possibly get. So at no point are hallucinations kind of lining up medically with what we read about in the gospel accounts. It's just really tough to make this case if you're going to take a medical approach. Here's another part about this. Liars make poor martyrs. And this is a point that gets contested a lot by, by skeptics or uh, people who are critical of the resurrection. And they'll say, that's not true. Like, people die all the time for what they believe, and that doesn't make what they believe true. And I would say, absolutely, you're, you're completely right. So let, let's, let's play a game. Now, fair warning, trigger warning for, for anyone out there. This is probably the most provocative, like, six, half a dozen slides in this whole deck, but I want you to just, just go with me for a second. We're going to play a little game of guess who. All right? Here it is. A small band of Middle Eastern men following God's representative on earth. And they believe sincerely so much in this representative that they are willing to die for him and his message. Who are we talking about? Are we talking about these men? All right, here it is. What about these men? Now, I don't do this to, to, to make light or poke fun, but simply to say that the skeptical point is right here, that these men died since for what they sincerely believed to be true. That does not prove that what they believed is, in fact, true. And that's exactly right. If that was the point that was being made by saying liars make poor martyrs, we, wouldn't, we would have to concede this point. Because they're absolutely right that martyrdom is not proof. It's not. People die all the time for what they believe to be true. You can be sincerely wrong. You can be sincerely wrong. But here's the difference. There is a difference between trusting and knowing. The men who killed themselves 
and a bunch of other people on 9-11 died for what they believed and trusted to be true based on the accounts and the, the, the eyewitness testimony of other people. And if you or I were to die today for our belief in Christianity, we would be dying on the same basis. I would die for this, but I would be dying based on a belief that I trust other people. I did not see it myself. I can't ultimately appeal to my own experience and say, I know it's true. I don't. I trust that it's true because I think there's good reasons to trust that it's true. That's not what the disciples died for. Church tradition, and again, not all tradition is created equal, right? We have stronger cases than others. Like we, It's pretty rock solid that Peter died a martyr. It's pretty rock solid that Paul and James... Uh, died a martyr. When you get into some of the, like Bartholomew and, and into Thomas, there is church tradition that, that almost all of them died martyrs. It's less sure, but again, if even some of them died as martyrs, it goes to show that th- this point, they, if they died for it, they weren't dying on the basis of trust. They were dying on the basis of knowledge. Let me illustrate. We'll go back here. How many of you not all of us are in this room, which is, oh man. How many of you are old enough to remember this day? Most of us. Some of us aren't. And so if someone were to ask you, did this happen? I read about it in a book. Did it happen? What would you say? Yeah, it happened. Why? How, why did, how do you know that? I saw it. I was there, or I saw it, and as it was happening. What if someone put a gun to your head and said, did this happen? Does that change anything? It either happened, or it didn't. You know that it happened. You were there, you saw it. This is what we're talking about with the disciples. It's different. It's altogether different. We're not saying that because they died, that proves that it's true. We're saying, no, because they saw it and died without recanting, that ought to give us pause. That's what we're saying. See the difference there? That's, that's, there's a significant difference in terms of understanding that. So, just want to be clear on that. All right, we're off the, we're off the, take a deep breath. We're off that. Here's our fourth fact. Soon after the, the death of Jesus, Paul converted because of an experience that he had and interpreted as the risen Jesus. Paul had an experience. He interpreted it as Jesus being bodily risen. Again, he's a Pharisee, so when he says Jesus is risen, he means something specific by it. Here's our evidence. So, Paul, in three times, Luke recounts Paul's conversion experience. He gives it three different times. Now, details notwithstanding, there, there is a way in the Greek, and Mike Lacona in his book actually has, goes through hundreds of instances of these Greek words and to get all the nuance and understanding of exactly how to, to interpret this. Part of the issue is that there's, it seems like the details are conflicting when you read all these accounts at face value. Of like, did, did his companions, did they see something or didn't they? Did they hear something or didn't they? Because it seems like, did they see but not hear? Did they hear but not see? Mike Lacona goes in in his book to kind of detail out basically the way to, that in the Greek you get a better understanding. The English translation is just kind of unfortunate in that way. 
that the, the harmonized account is, here's what happened. <clears throat> His companions saw a light, but they could not ascertain or perceive who it was in that light. Paul says he could. They heard a voice speaking, but they could not make out or understand what it was that was actually being said. So the question is, did they see or hear something? The, question, the answer is both, sort of, but in a limited extent. So did Paul see Jesus? Well, we have a couple things that are just circumstantially interesting. Paul believed he saw Jesus. Again, it says, it says in the Acts account that a, there was a great light. That's not what Paul says he saw. Paul doesn't say, and I saw a light. When he says in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? That's not a light. He's very confident that he's seen Jesus himself. And then again, in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul's recounting all the appearances, he appeared to to Cephas, to Peter. He appeared to the 12. He appeared to the 500. He appeared to James. He appeared to... And then least of all me. Well, all of those he considers bodily appearances. And he tacks his own right onto the end of it. For Paul, there doesn't seem to be any qualitative difference in the kind of experience he had and the kind of experience that he's saying all the other disciples had. It's telling. Again, Paul's companions, whatever they experienced, they experienced something. And that alone is enough to rule out hallucination. If they experienced anything at all, it wasn't something that was exclusively in Paul's mind. And again, Paul and Luke both knew what visions were. How do we know that? Well, Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, I think it is, he recounts a vision that he had when he was caught up to the third heaven, right? And he was told words that he couldn't repeat and things like this. So Paul understood the difference between a vision and and a bodily appearance because he had a vision and he knew the difference. Luke knew what visions were because it's Luke who recounts to us the stoning of Stephen. And as Stephen is dying, he says, Stephen looked up and he had a vision of Jesus seated at the right hand of God. Luke knew what a vision was. And he goes out of his way. It's as if they both go out of their way to make sure that they're not using vision language here. But they did know what one was. So if that's what they thought it was, there's good reason to think they would have used that language. Here's another fly in the ointment. Grief and bereavement-induced hallucination is a, pl- is a possible explanation for the disciples. Paul would not be grieving the death of Jesus. He wouldn't. In fact, when you read the account in Acts, he was in hearty agreement, hearty agreement with those who were killing Stephen, and then he immediately went and he got permission from the, the Jewish leaders to go and start persecuting Christians, throwing them in jail, beating them, killing them. This is not someone who's grief-stricken, who's all heartbroken at the the death of Jesus. He was glad that this blasphemer was killed because in Paul's mind, he deserved to be. Again, the idea of a crucified Messiah was so un-Jewish. Bart Ehrman in his book, he uses the example and it's the best he can give. It's just like, it would be like if I tried to make the case to you that, now this is really going to date some of us in the room. Um, it would be like if I tried to make the case to you that David Koresh was actually the Messiah. He was God's chosen one on earth. That guy? Are you kidding? Like, how offensive is that idea to us? Because we know who he is and we know what he did. That's along the same lines of the idea of a Messiah getting himself killed was so antagonistic to what the Jews believed at the time. That's why he says they wouldn't make it up. Paul wouldn't have been grieving this. The very concept was 
disgusting to him. So naturalistic explanations for Paul. We've already talked about hallucination. That's a tough one. It just is, based on what we know about hallucinations, and we know how, again, Paul doesn't fit any of the demographics. Or you'd have to say Paul had a brain tumor. Again, this is ad hoc. Paul had a brain tumor, or Paul was schizophrenic, or Paul was delusional, or Paul had lesions on his spine. Again, we don't, we don't know any of that. We don't have any evidence for that. Did Paul lie? If he didn't have a hallucination, did he lie? Why do people lie? What are some of the reasons? To get out of something, or, or to get some, to gain something. Like, categorically, there's kind of three positive motivations for why people lie. Money, sex, and power. Generally speaking, and I've heard homicide detectives kind of break it down that way. <laughs> Someone who interviews people who lie all the time. He's like, here's the motivations for lying. Money, sex, and power. Paul stood to gain none of those. In fact, Paul stood to lose some of those. Who was Paul, right? He was a very powerful, influential Jewish rabbi in the Pharisaic group, which was the controlling group in Jerusalem at the time, under Gamaliel, considered the best teacher of all. He had so much influence as part of that. He stood to lose all of that by converting. He stood to lose all of that influence and to join himself to a group of people who were persecuted, hated, kicked out of wherever they went, and generally despised because no one, the Greeks or Romans or the Jews, like Christians. Not only that, he had plenty of time to reconsider because he was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was thrown in jail, <laughs> he was treated all kinds of bad. He was almost killed umpteen times, and then he finally was killed. That's a lot to endure for something that you just made up. And it just doesn't seem plausible. And then what about embellishment? Again, this is one of the earliest accounts. It goes all the way back to the beginning. So if Paul was in Jerusalem comparing notes with Peter and James six years, say, after Jesus' death, that means, well, or three to, three to six years even, that means Paul converted within one to three years of Jesus' death. It's early. And the Christians would have been able to corroborate. So again, the the idea that this would have been something added in a couple hundred years later, it just doesn't jive. It's too early to be an embellishment. So let's summarize before we take another break. We've covered a lot. Here are our four facts. Again, even the empty tomb, you've got about two, two-thirds of all scholars will give you that. And that's by far the most controversial of these. The, vast, the other three are much, much higher. Three-quarters to eight, nine out of ten scholars will give you these. Jesus died and was buried. Something happened to his body. The disciples believed that they saw him alive after that. And Paul, a skeptic and persecutor, did too. Those are our four facts. Now we're going to get into what best explains those four facts any questions on our historical case? All right. Get up, shake a leg. I'm mostly done talking. The rest of this is going to be you all. Just fair warning. Thank you, Bree.
We're going to roll into the next section. Pants, is that what you're <laughs> Unfortunate choice of words. All right, we're going to get into our last section here before we wrap up. It's weighing the theories. Now, as I said, this is mostly not going to involve me talking. We have our facts laid out. We have our case. You are the historians today. So the question is, what do you do with the facts? You have them. So what we're going to do is this. We're going to look at four, basically the four in terms of what scholarship has offered, theories as to how to explain the resurrection. So you're going to do this at your tables in your groups. So for this, if you're at one of the long tables, when we get started, it might be helpful for some of you to kind of come around and face each other so you can have a little bit easier interaction. But here's what we're going to do. Here's our ground rules. You're going to discuss the theory at your group. Specifically, you're going to discuss the theory by answering the questions in your workbook. So what I've done is given you space for each of, remember the historian's approach, explanatory scope, how much of the evidence does it explain? We have our evidence now. How much of it does it explain? How easily does it explain it? Is it reasonable based on what we know? Um, does, it make, does it ask us to make a bunch of additional beliefs that don't, aren't supported with evidence? And does it help shed light on anything else that's sort of peripheral? You're going to do that for each of them. So we're going to give you about five minutes in your tables to discuss and answer these questions. Write down any notes. And then we'll take a few minutes, maybe not five, but a few minutes to discuss what you all collectively came up with. Sound good? Any questions? Please. You're going to just do the first theory. We're going to do each theory one at a time. So, our first theory is the apparent death theory. Now, actually, this is a theory we haven't really discussed. This is, this is a view that is sometimes espoused in particular by Muslims. The Quran actually teaches that uh, Jesus didn't die on the cross. It only appeared that he died. That's actually in the Quran. Now, I've heard Muslim scholars say, well, it's more like Jesus didn't actually, wasn't the one to get crucified. It was someone who looked like Jesus. In any case, the idea here is that Jesus didn't actually die. Whether he was crucified or not, he didn't actually die. He showed up later and pronounced himself as the risen Christ, and the disciples believed him. So, you're going to weigh that theory based on the five criteria that we've, the five questions we have. You know your four facts. Those are your, when I say how much the evidence, that's your evidence. Those four facts. Any questions? Just page five right now. Yep. So I'll go ahead and leave this up. We'll put on some music and we'll give you a few minutes to discuss and do that in your groups. Seemed dead. He passed out or went into a coma where he later revived in the tomb and then somehow got out of the tomb, got to the disciples and declared himself risen. That's the theory. So you're answering your question saying, so how much of the evidence does that theory account for? How easily does it do it? Does that theory make other assumptions I need to account for? Those kind of things. So, let's get some of your thoughts. So, in terms of, and we'll just kind of take this free form, since we won't take the time to go through every one, but what stood out to you is you're weighing this theory. What stands out? What are, does it have any strengths? Does it account for any of the evidence? Does it not account for any of the evidence? So, does it require additional assumptions or ad hoc beliefs? So talk to me. What did you come up with on the apparent death theory? Yeah, please. 
Yeah, so you have, you have a lot of trouble. So the fact number one, that Jesus did die and was buried, this would contradict that. And the medical evidence makes that tough. Yeah, and it's possible, but you're going against the grain of the medical evidence at that point. Yeah, what else? Mm-hmm. But also the fact that, that he was seen after his death, that could be, well, that doesn't happen. If he died, dead people don't come alive. So if he was seen, he must not have been actually dead. So we'll come back to that. I'm going to take a few more and we'll summarize. Yeah, please. Uh, they leave anything out. They, they could not produce the body. Not to mention, so this is kind of tying in both of those. Let's say that Jesus was crucified but didn't die. So this gets to the ad hocness. What must we believe about Jesus and what he did after he came, like, resuscitated in the cool of the tomb? Right? So he escaped, but what would, it requ- what would be required for Jesus to escape? Yeah, so he would have had to have healed enough to, to move out on, under his own power. Right. Yeah. What else would Jesus have had to have done? He's got about a, a most estimates are fifteen hundred to two thousand pound rock blocking the stone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a man, not just any man, but this is a man who's been scourged and crucified in the way that we just described who was fortunate enough not to die, or maybe unfortunate enough not to die. He's wrapped up in, in, again, by Jewish standards, what was about 50 to 60 pounds of wrappings and spices that they would use to prepare the body uh, for that process of decomposition before they'd put the bones in an ossuary a year later. So he's got to get out of that. Yeah, so you've got food and water problems. So with food... Not really an issue. The human body can survive a while without food, about 40 days. But water, you've got a problem. And on your best, your best condition, you can survive six to seven days without water. Jesus was not in his best condition. And we already established, he pro- he would, it, whether he died or didn't die, he would have been severely dehydrated. Severely dehydrated. He has to overpower either a temple or a Roman guard, professional soldiers. He has to make his way into, well, find the disciples, make his way to where they are. And everyone he runs into to pick up the, enough, enough energy and gumption to declare himself the risen Messiah and invite them to touch and see, right? Uh, if Jesus had shown up at the disciples' door looking like that, they would not have called him the Lord. They would have called him a doctor. They would have. That's just not... It's, to your point, he would have had to have healed. The human body doesn't heal that fast. I don't heal that fast from a bruise when I bump into the wall, let alone a scourging and a crucifixion and having spikes through my... It's just, it's just not... It's hard. It's hard to swallow that pill. So what else? Anything else that you... Does it, so it, it, it does, in a way, it does account for the empty tomb... Because, okay, well, he left. So there, but believing how he left is where we get into some ad hoc stuff. 
So I want to be generous where we can be. It, it, it does account for the burial in its own way. It does account for the empty tomb, what happened to his body, but it doesn't do a very good job of accounting for three, certainly not four, and when, we're, when I'm numbering our facts. And it's in direct contradiction to the first part of one, that he died. So we've got some problems. Anything else anyone wants to say about this theory? Good or bad? Please. Yeah, so you would assume that anyone who handled the body of Jesus from the Romans who took him down from the cross, from the Roman centurion who declared him dead, uh, by the way, which was one, there was a, the Romans had a group of four people. They were the execution squad. One of them, his whole job was to make sure that the person was dead. It was his whole job. And so the spear and all this stuff still got it wrong. And then everyone who carried him, as they're wrapping and embalming him, no one noticed that his, I mean, you're talking about extremely shallow breathing if there was. But again, then you've got the wounds to contend with, the weight of the spices, the, all that. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on. The next theory, stolen or missing body. This is actually the very first alternative theory because we know from Matthew 28. So, again, just to summarize before we dive in, the theory is that Jesus did die, he was buried, and someone, either the disciples or the Romans, I've even heard, I'm not trying to be funny, I've actually heard the theory that Joseph of Arimathea decided right before Sabbath on Friday to come back and remove Jesus' body somewhere else and then promptly had a heart attack and died before he could tell anyone where he moved Jesus' body. Is it possible? Yeah, it's pretty ad hoc. But... So that's the theory. Someone moved the body, or it went missing somehow, and here we are. So what does it explain? What doesn't it explain? What are the strengths? What are the weaknesses? Let's go. So just I'll summarize for for everyone. Lots of contradictory issues with depending on whoever it was that stole the body or however it went missing. You've got problems, and I mean we can run through some of them here real quick. So there's different possible groups that could have done it. So we've got problems no matter what. So let's say we'll go with Matthew 28. Let's say it was the disciples that stole the body. What are the problems with that? No matter what. To Dave's point, you're talking about collusion and you're talking about a, a conspiracy. J. Warner Wallace, who's a Christian apologist, is also, he, he is, was and is to this day an active cold case homicide detective. He's talked about conspiracies because he deals with them from time to time of like hiding bodies and things like that. He says, um, do, do you want to know what the, the ideal number of people involved in a conspiracy is? If you want to be sure that it's one. <laughs> Especially when you add time and distance and they can't communicate. So if people can communicate with each other constantly uh, and keep their story straight, a lot 
and they have low stress and pressure on them to keep their story straight, that's your ideal circumstances. There wasn't low pressure on the disciples, and they all dispersed. And in that time, there was no cell phones, no, no talking. So how are they going to communicate and make sure they're all keeping their story straight? And yet somehow the story stayed straight. So if the disciples stole the body, what are some problems we have in terms of how would that have, logistically, how would that have worked? Go ahead. You've got the guards. That's a problem. Fishermen versus soldiers. The stone, no small feet. They were designed not to be moved, right? Yeah, if, if you're in a hurry, why are you unwrapping the body? And this is sort of a similar similar question if we get into just grave robbers, which grave robbery was a thing. It, it happened in the first century. We know it happened because later on there was a Roman uh, a Caesar who issued an edict that was basically declaring capital punishment for anyone found robbing a grave. And there's questions of whether that's actually tied to this or not. Um, but we know that it occurred. Yeah. So what else for the disciples, please? Yeah, they were in hiding. That would re- so, so you have an alternative narrative, and ha- w- with what positive evidence do you support that, right? I mean, what, what historical documents can we go to to say, well, this implies that, or it tells us that this is what happened? We don't have that competing narrative. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to get out in front of that competing narrative. Here's the thing. This is an interesting one. Let's say they did do it. Let's say they stole the body. Why would you, in your own documents, why would you implicate yourself? Why would you plant a thought in people's heads that they may not have had up to that point that you did it, if you did it, right? I mean, Matthew 28, they're essentially pointing the finger at themselves and saying, but you got to always wonder if we did it or not. If they did actually do that, why would they do such a thing? That really doesn't make much sense, right? They're drawing attention to themselves, when they should be trying to push attention away. So what about the Romans? Let's say the Romans move the body. So they don't have the guard to worry about. But what else? What are other problems? Why would the Romans uh, want to politicize or populize something that they were Yeah. Not, or they were trying to right. squash? We know from the conversation with Pilate and the Jewish leaders, before, right after Jesus is buried, they come to him and say, listen, this body could go missing, and that would be bad for all of us. And Pilate's like, okay, go take care of it. No one wanted to, on, on either side of that, wanted to risk feeding this fire, right? They did not want that to happen. So they're taking a risk by moving the body that it could be misinterpreted. You've got other problems, too. The, the, John says that the, the linens were not only taken off the body, what else were they? They were folded. Who does that? The Romans wouldn't have had the respect for a body to do that. This was, this was a... To the Romans, Jesus was a political revolutionary that was inciting rebellion against the Roman Empire. You're not going to treat him well if you're moving his body. You just it's, so. What about? Are there, I mean, are there any other groups? Right. So we've got if the disciples did successfully move the body and reburied it, you've got the martyrdom problem. If the Romans moved the body and reburied it, how did Christianity get off the ground? They would have just produced it. Said, oh, I, yeah, I can see it. It's over here. It's right here. Come get it, right? 
Anything else? Any other, as you're weighing this and thinking about it, other things that stand out? doesn't explain the appearances. And again, you could appeal to hallucination, but we know there's problems with that. So some of these theories kind of dip into other theories because the theory only explains one or two of the facts, and then you've got this gaping hole, so you have to appeal to a different theory to account for those facts, which we'll get to next. But yeah, you're right. You have to somehow also account, separate from this, for the appearances and for Paul. You also have to, when you're moving a body, there are other people that could see it. I mean, you have people get caught moving a body in the trunk of a car, they get Serial killers get stopped by the police. Well, if you're driving through town, you don't have a trunk. You've got a right. wagon and right. a bunch of people. So not only was the tomb guarded, but here's another issue, specifically a Jewish issue. So Jesus, it says he was in the he was buried for three days. The way Jews kept time, that's technically true. Jesus was actually in the tomb for about 36 hours. We wouldn't count that as three days. But here's the thing: in the ancient Jewish culture, any part of a day, any part of a day counted as a day. He was crucified on Friday afternoon, day one. He was buried. He went into the tomb on Friday, day one. Saturday is the Sabbath. Sunday morning, the tomb's empty. Three days. When would they have moved the body? Saturday. Why is that a problem? It's the Sabbath. Not only are they breaking Sabbath, they're also breaking kosher laws. They're unclean by ceremonial standards. They're doing all kinds of bad stuff from the Jewish perspective. It's a problem, and you have to account for it. All right. Next theory. Hallucinations, visions. Again, this might seem like, why are we doing this? But again, I'm just, this, from people, from, from scholarship who is skeptical or critical, this is the, by far, the most commonly appealed to theory to explain this. So the reason we're talking about it is because this is more than likely what you'll run into if you're talking to someone about this and they're skeptical, this theory. So go ahead, discuss it. We'll talk in a few minutes. What does it explain? What doesn't it explain? Why? Yeah. Yeah. And even if you're going to appeal to drugs, which some people have, uh, actually, uh, even if you're going to appeal to drugs for the mass hallucination thing, again, we can have, we can all take drugs and have hallucinations. It doesn't mean we're going to have the same one, right? So it, this is the group, group shared hallucinations is an oxymoron. It's like a square circle, you know? It, it just, it's not a thing, and it's incoherent to talk about a group hallucination. That's not, by definition, what one is. Any other thoughts? Yeah, you can't feed or feel hallucinations. So even assuming that they did have a multimodal hallucination, which is exceedingly rare, in which they hallucinated eating with Jesus, You've got problems then of like come back into the room. Is there is there half-eaten bread on the table? Like what, you know they they were cooking and eating fish with Jesus. These are all like it's just it's it's stretches plausibility. Not impossible, but it stretches plausibility. Yeah. What else? Please.
the facts don't permit us to say that we are certain what Paul saw, but they do permit us to say Paul was certain of what Paul saw. And that, that needs explaining, and it's hard on this one. What else? There's a big, there's a big elephant in the room, y'all. Back there. You don't see it? Well, on the question where the last one, does it resolve additional questions? Not really. It still doesn't resolve the missing body. That's the elephant. That's the elephant. Stu found the elephant, everyone. It was over there. Uh, so if all, if all the appearances, including Paul, are just hallucinations and visions, there's a really easy way to, to, to debunk that, right? You've got a body in a tomb rotting away, right? Nothing happened to the body of Jesus if these were all hallucinations. So go look at the body. Case closed, right? So again, just like the stolen body needs to appeal to something else to explain the visions, the visions need to appeal to something else to explain the body. So you have to, you have to overlap and kind of mix and match these theories. Any other, any other thoughts? Yeah, well, low. Extremely low. A Jesus impersonator. So here's, so, it's again, it's possible. I mean, we're just, we're, we're, we're stretching, we're exploring. Who were the disciples? How well did they know Jesus? How much time had they spent with Jesus? It, it's pretty reasonable to think that anyone who would have impersonated Jesus would have known Jesus less well than the people that he was trying to impersonate him to. Right? And it does say that the Emmaus disciples uh, and, and some of the women didn't recognize him at first. There's plausible reasons for that, not just that. What would have been the last image that these folks had of Jesus? He did not even look like a person, it says. If that's the last image you have burned into your brain of someone, to see them safe and sound, whole and well, it would take you a minute. It'd take you a minute, right? Yeah, so we, we know that Jesus... So this is the nature of glorified bodies, and this is, this is another topic, but that in the Jewish mind... So spiritual body, this is something we struggle with in our modern context. Spiritual body does not mean non-physical. For Paul, he said, we will get a spiritual body. Paul was a Pharisee. That meant physical body. The opposite of spiritual is not immaterial. If you read the text when Paul's teaching on this in 2 Corinthians 5, the opposite of spiritual is corruptible. That's the antithesis. It's not immaterial with spiritual. So you can have a spiritual, physical body. It's a physical body that will never corrupt, never wear out. But yeah, so Jesus had... There was continuity between his body, his glorified body, and his earthly body because they recognized him, because he had scars. But there was also discontinuity as well because this was a body fit for eternity and his other body wasn't. So it's gonna, that's the belief that Christians have of what it'll be like for us. There will be both continuity and discontinuity with our body. In, in a very real way, this will be our body. We will recognize it as such in heaven. And yet there will be ways that we even recognize it's very different than the body we had, but not so different that it's a different body. There, there you go. <laughs> Clears mud. All right. So, last one. Last is bodily resurrection. That, again, what's good, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. We're going to weigh this theory 
on the same questions that we weighed the other theories on. That's only fair. We're trying to be as neutral as we can be. So answer the questions. Take, take your time. Really think through. Does this require that I believe anything else? Does this, how does this really work? What are the strengths? What are the weaknesses, if any? And we'll talk. Bring it back in, and we'll talk for a few minutes. So what'd you come up with? God actually raised Jesus from the dead. That's our theory. How does it do? What do, we, what do we think? What does it explain? What doesn't it explain? Or what additional beliefs do we have to have in order for this to be plausible? I mean, he said it himself. Jesus did. Yeah. Well, that Jesus predicted this or said that, that this would happen? Yeah. So, but that's not necessarily proof that it did happen. But if it did happen, that there's illumination there that tells us more about who Jesus actually is, if he's able to predict such a thing. Absolutely. Please? Not everyone saw his ascension? So what do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what would we say to that? If someone says, well, I didn't see it happen. Well, ask someone who did, right? So there are eyewitnesses. And again, based on what we've looked at, do we, it's weighing. Do we have reasons to doubt them? Do we have reasons to trust them? Which reasons do we find more plausible? Again, we're not going to assume or deny off the bat, just saying, do we, do we find the apostles' accounts credible? And if we do... They say they saw it, so can we can we believe them on that basis? Yeah, please. What's that? How did he raise from the dead? So what do you mean by that? I see what you're saying. So the whole theory is based on the idea that a dead man came back to life. So <clears throat> what does that require us to believe that such a... Th- I mean, because you look at modern science, and I'll tell you, dead people... Don't come back from the dead. That's what it means to be dead. You don't come back. So it requires us to believe in miracles and that God exists and that Jesus is alive. You nailed it. It requires so the ad, there are ad hoc beliefs here. The question is, are they justified? So it does require us to have a couple additional beliefs. Miracles are possible. God exists. Now the question, of course, if God exists, then miracles kind of come in alongside. So the question is, are there good reasons to believe that God exists? There's at least half a dozen that Christian philosophers have been arguing for a long time. Uh, And there's a book in here I'll mention in just a minute that if you're interested in those. So the the question is, are there good reasons? There are reasons. The question is, you've got to look at each of those and determine if you think they're a good reason or not. But there are arguments for that. It's not just an assumption there are justified reasons for believing God exists. But it would require you to accept those reasons and then come to the conclusion, yeah, God does exist. <clears throat> Therefore, there is someone to raise Jesus from the dead. Yeah. What else? It makes more sense to believe that it happened based on the fact that these deci- the apostles and disciples <coughs> gave up their lives and martyrdom, and people don't generally do that mm-hmm. to cover up a life. Yep. So it, it makes better sense of their willingness to die. It does account for his death and, and accurate. it says, no, it actually happened. It does account 
for his burial. It does account for the empty tomb. And it does account for the appearances that, well, if he was actually bodily there, then there was someone there for them to interact with and, and see. Yeah. And not just their death, but their entire life after. Yeah. They worked really hard and suffered a lot of things for the rest of their life. Absolutely. Who does that? That's right. Yeah, it wasn't a one-time decision. It was now they lived their whole lives differently on that basis and, and gave up quite a lot from an earthly standpoint, right? So it, they, they certainly had suffered a lot, and they, yeah, they, they definitely believed it was true, and if this actually happened, that can give us a plausible account of why they would believe it, yeah. In Rome itself ended up embracing this later. Yeah. Against all odds, this belief spread. And so there's a, there's a question of how do you account for the rapid growth of Christianity? And there's... Well, even, yeah. Even right. I mean, Into the heart of the place that was trying to... Cover it. Cover it up and squash it. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. Now, like I said, we have been... We've been flying through this material. So, there's a couple things to cover as we just kind of wrap up and put a bow in it. We're almost out of time. So, on page 10... Of your, Sarah, there's some recommended reading. And I'll just say right now, we're going to get to this in just a second, but I mentioned some of these things earlier, so I'm going to turn there now. Uh, if you're looking for books specifically on and really nothing else than the resurrection, there's two books The Resurrection of Jesus by Mike Lacona, I've mentioned that, and then we had him up here quoting him, N.T. Wright's book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. If you're looking for books on more of a general Christian worldview that include peripherally discussing the resurrection, um, On Guard by William Lane Craig is, is good. He makes a minimal facts case. However, if you're also interested in are there good reasons to believe that God exists, On Guard will give you four and lay them all out in all their detail. So if that's the particular topic you'd like more on, On Guard. Cold Case Christianity by Jane Warner Wallace. If you're interested in particular in the reliability of the scriptures and how we date those, and can we trust that what we have is what was written, Cold Case Christianity is your book. Uh, and then Reasonable Faith by William Lane Craig is basically a more scholarly, more technical version of On Guard. So if that's more your speed and you want something that's a little more in-depth, it requires you to take frequent breaks and drink lots of water, get Reasonable Faith. All right? Uh, now, I haven't done this exhaustively, but most of the major sources, especially the non-Christian sources, on page 11, I've tried to cite as many of those as I can. So, most of, almost all, all these non-Christian sources that I've cited are public domain. These guys have been dead far too long for royalties to matter. So, <clears throat> if you Google search these things, you'll find them. So, don't take my word for it. It's out there. Trust Google. What a thought. Uh, so, we're, we're out of time. However... If you have any burning questions, there's two ways we can deal with those. You're more than welcome to stay after and, and ask. I'll stick around for a little while to answer any questions you might have. Uh, however, I'm also going to give you my email address in just two slides. Feel free to email me. So lastly, I have one favor to ask of you. And it's not entirely altruistic. There is something in it for you. And I'm going to pass out some evals. And while I do that, um, I'll have Bob here in just a minute put on some music. But I'm not asking you for your feedback just out of the goodness of my heart. Um, so the two books that I mentioned on the resurrection, 
the one by Mike Lacona and by N.T. Wright. Uh, I have a copy of each of those with me, just to show you that I do, in fact, have them. Uh, and if you are so kind as to... Oh, do you have, do you have some already? Yes. Yeah. Okay, I'll get you some more. If you are so kind as to fill this out with your email address... Yes. Um, I'm going to have an email address randomly selected out of these to receive one of those. So um, if you'd like an opportunity to get a free copy of either Mike Lycona or N.T. Wright's book, they're both over 700 pages, so they also double as a home defense weapon in case you get into trouble there. Um, just give me your email address on your eval. So go ahead, Bob, throw music on. I'm just going to like completely kill them. But the Koosh Balls, uh, we have made a significant... I don't know if you've priced Koosh Balls. They are not cheap. So we hope to use these for many, many years in the future. So pipe cleaners, if you want to walk away with some of those because you made yourself some sweet Elton John glasses, go for it. But please, please, please don't walk away with a Koosh Ball. Uh, we want to keep as many of those as possible. So um, if you have any questions, like I said, you can stay after uh, email me. Otherwise, thank you very much for your time.